Hi, friends. I hope I can call you friends. I hope that's not too presumptuous. It me, Andy Sell, host and producer, co-host, co-producer, whatever, of Ghoul School, a horror history podcast, which you are listening to right now here on the Unpops Network. I just wanted to jump in front of today's episode real quick to address the elephants in the room. First of all, I am so sorry that it took so long to get this episode out. It's ridiculous. It should not have been this late. There are a lot of reasons for that, from equipment issues to editing mishaps to scheduling problems to other work and projects getting in the way and travel and all kinds of other things. So I actually even had to redo the episode after finishing it the first time almost completely. So it took a while, but we got here. And I hope I haven't let anyone down or anything. I'm going to try to make sure that we don't go this long without an episode again. Now, having said that, I don't want to give a content warning or a trigger warning, but this episode does go into some dark, kind of heavy stuff. Also, the format is a little different this time. You'll definitely notice for this first section, which I have been referring to as the notes or lecture section, it's just me. Adam Todd Brown still joins me for the conversation regarding today's feature film, but everything before it is just me. And mm, heads up, this is a really long episode. I am sorry. I kind of went a little deep divey. It's very exhaustive. So hope that's okay and you don't get annoyed with me. Now that that's out of the Speaking of elephants, Topsy the Elephant was a female Asian elephant and a featured attraction at Four Paw Circus for 25 years until 1902 when Topsy killed a spectator and was sold to Coney Island's Sea Lion Park as a result. At the end of the 1902 season, after several incidents that gained a lot of negative attention for the park and for Topsy, possibly due to mistreatment from her handler and the publicity-seeking tendency of the park's owners, it was decided that Topsy would be put to death. At first, they had planned to hang Topsy and charge admission for people to watch her execution, but the ASPCA stepped in and put a stop to that. And instead, what they did was probably way worse. And on January 4th, 1903, in front of a small group of invited guests and reporters, Topsy was poisoned, electrocuted, and strangled to death. Included in that group of onlookers was a film crew sent by Thomas Edison to immortalize the spectacle on their cameras. The resulting product was released to the kinetoscopes with the title Electrocuting an Elephant. It's maybe the first death of an animal on film in history, and it set some pretty disturbing precedents for media to come. Yep, Buckle up, friends. It's going to be that kind of ride. Yeah. <laughs> 
So, here we are. Season 1, Episode 3, and we are still exploring the evolution of found footage in horror. With that in mind, it was kind of inevitable that we would reach this point. Perhaps it's a little too early in the podcast for me to be dealing with some of the heavy themes and overall dark shit that we are going to come up against with this subject, but... As horror fans, those of us who are horror fans, I do know that there are some people who listen to this podcast who are not necessarily horror fans, and I am both bewildered and flattered by that. Thank you. But those of us who are horror fans are no stranger to having to defend our fandom or having to examine our fandom, having to challenge ourselves with questions about what it means and why we watch what we watch. And possibly no episode of this podcast is ever going to touch on something that exemplifies that struggle more than this one. I'm going to be honest with you, in researching this episode, I had to go down a lot of rabbit holes, and a lot of those rabbit holes led to really intense things, and as I said, some dark shit. And that research affected me. I'm not sure just how much, because I have depression spells, anxiety spirals, and nightmares anyway, but they've definitely increased since starting the research for this episode. I mean, I'm not kidding. My browser search history alone is just awful. It's It reads like a, an everything that's wrong with humanity word salad. It's It's messed up. But I'm going to spare you a lot of that, and I'm going to try to maintain a central focus and a timeline here, which is going to be difficult. It's, I mean, never mind coming up with a simple thesis that covers all of this stuff. It's going to be a struggle just to maintain that timeline, but I'm going to try. And in relation to the feature film that we are going to be focusing on in the discussion portion of this episode, I guess the best way to, if I need to slap a name on the syllabus or on this lecture, as it were, it would be pseudo-snuff and morbid curiosity. Because while we're talking about found footage and how it relates to the horror genre, I can personally think of nothing more horrifying than the possibility of watching found footage of a person being murdered or dying violently. And the thing there is that when you step back from it and you look at the media that we've consumed, not just in the genre, but at large, since maybe the birth of media, it's already there. Footage of accidents and tragedy and cruelty are all over. And that's not a new phenomenon. People like to think that reality TV and the internet opened the doors for this, but that's simply not the case. Go back to 1976 and watch Sidney Lumet's Network. That film from 40 years ago explores these ideas. And it wasn't even new then, if we're being honest with ourselves. But... I digress. Let's talk about morbid curiosity for a second, and specifically morbid curiosity as it relates to what we see in the media. Now, we could go back to the Roman Colosseum and that concept of spectacle. We could go back even much further, but I'm not going to do that. We need to start somewhere. And I'd like to start with the Grand Guignol. Just because if we're looking at horror, that's sort of the birthplace of a lot of the things that we see in the genre. And it ties into a couple other things that will come up later in the episode. So let's go there. 
the Theatre du Grand Guignol, and I do not speak French, but it literally translates to Theatre of the Great Puppet, was founded in 1897 in an abandoned church in the Pigalle area of Paris by Oscar Metenier, who is a playwright, and its initial purpose was to put on naturalistic theater depicting the lives of members of the citizenry who had previously gone unrepresented in theater. Plays about sex workers, criminals, the working poor, street kids, and the homeless to kind of give them a voice. But that didn't last long. Only a year later, a new creative director took over and decided to lean much more heavily on the idea of spectacle. And they started putting on horror plays that worked in the themes of insanity and disease and the ideas of losing control and mass hysteria and other forms of the other. Now, they were broken up by comedic acts to kind of relieve the tension, but these plays featured very explicit graphic violence and special effects and prided themselves on making audience members faint because they were so overcome with the extremity of what they were watching. The theater put these plays on until 1962 when it shut down. The owners at the time cited real-world horror as the reason for closing down, specifically referencing the Holocaust and all of the carnage of World War II, suggesting that their shows had become mundane by comparison. And this is notable because one of the final performances of the Grand Guignol was captured in the Mondo film Echo, which we will get into Mondo films a little later. But the Grand Guignol and its opening towards the turn of the century from the 1800s to the 1900s serves as a good starting point. Because we also, a few years later, in 1901, have some other films that serve as mile markers. Now, predating his electrocuting an elephant, Thomas Edison made a movie in 1901 called The Execution of Leon Shulgosh and a Panorama of Auburn Prison. Leon Shulgosh was the anarchist who assassinated President McKinley and was sentenced to death. Originally, Edison had requested permission to film the actual execution. This request was denied. So instead, what they did was they went to the prison and shot the exterior as sort of an establishing shot on the day of the actual execution, and then in a soundstage, recreated the execution using actors and props, and then released it to the kinetoscopes so that people who had maybe become bored with the other actualities could indulge the morbid curiosity that would compel them to watch something like this. Also in that year, we have a French film called Histoire d'un crime, which is history of a crime. And it's a traditional narrative film about a man who killed a banker in a home invasion and then was arrested at a cafe the next morning and is now on death row reflecting on his crimes with the footage of the previous home invasion and arrest being projected on his cell wall, sort of like a thought bubble to simulate the idea of, you know, memory and reflection. And then it ends with his execution by guillotine. Now, when this film played in theater, 
theaters, they would stop the film before the execution sequence so that women and children could leave, but the men could stay and satisfy that morbid curiosity. At some point, French authorities censored the film and removed the execution sequence at the end entirely. And while it may not pertain directly to the ideas of found footage and in horror, it does give us an early glimpse at the cinema of cruelty with the idea of a home invasion and provides a very early example of this notion of what can you stomach and what can you watch with the device of letting certain people leave the theater. It's also notably one of the earliest narrative crime films, possibly the first. Five years later, in 1906, newsreels came onto the scene. We all know what newsreels are. They were informational current event updates that preceded feature films in theaters. And new ones were shot, produced, distributed, and exhibited nearly every day. Now, these wouldn't become super notable for our purposes until 1929, when the first horrifying unplanned event took place in front of newsreel cameras, which was the attempted assassination of King Humbert of Italy. In that same year, surrealist artists and filmmakers Louis Bunuel and Salvador Dali released a movie called Un Chen en Delu. And we will get into that movie, I think, probably in a later episode. But using editing and really gruesome special effects, they created the illusion of a woman getting her eyeball sliced by a razor which gives us one of the earliest examples of extreme gore effects. And also, other sequences in the film provide us with some of the earliest examples of body horror. When the film premiered, Buñuel was counting on the images to revolt and disgust and overwhelm the audience so much that he expected a riot. Of course, it didn't come. The film was well-received, and he wouldn't get his riot until later when the final collaboration between him and Dali Lodge d'Or premiered and pissed everybody off with its anti-religious messages. In 1937, the Hindenburg disaster happened and gives us our first real example of just how widespread and how lasting images of a disaster as distributed by a large media system can be. And just a year later, in 1938, a Hollywood studio released a film called Too Hot to Handle, starring Clark Gable and Myrna Loy. The plot concerns an opportunistic newsreel journalist. But what's notable is that the film features actual newsreel footage of a sinking ship and its crew jumping into the water, some of whom really died. And this gives us a very early example of a fictional film incorporating a legitimate found footage component into its sequencing. And that leads us to this idea of discussing how the media informs or exploits our natural tendencies towards morbid curiosity with its use of such footage. And that's in 1938. So this is already a relevant discussion well before the digital age. And although we have examples of shock footage or tragedy footage being used in newsreels and propaganda films and the like all through the World War II era, I think that the idea of this discussion of morbid curiosity and gawking at the state of the world really starts exploding in the 1960s. So let's go ahead and jump ahead. I don't think I need to tell you that the 1960s were a turbulent decade with no shortage of live or recorded footage of unrest and violence all over the world. And we will touch on some of that 
But let's shift gears a little bit and look at the horror genre in the 1960s. The 1960s were kicked off in their very first year with not just one, but two movies that challenged audiences with long, kind of deep, somewhat realistic, and arguably at times almost sympathetic looks at homicidal psychopaths. We all know what the first one is. It's Hitchcock's Psycho. Duh. But let's talk about the other one. Because in addition to being significantly lesser known, and I'm always a fan of the underdog, it directly pertains to our subject for this season. That film is Peeping Tom, directed by Michael Powell. Michael Powell was a prestigious filmmaker at the time, known for films like The Red Shoes, The Life and Death of Colonel Blimp, Black Narcissus, and many more. He was a respected and important cultural figure, and Peeping Tom pretty much killed that. Even after seven pretty major cuts to the film, it earned the X certificate. The film arguably brings the concept of snuff films, if not the name, into the mainstream consciousness. It's maybe the first film to feature the idea of snuff film in its main narrative. Now, what we become used to much later on is this idea of snuff films as part of a vast conspiracy or a criminal underworld that produces these movies featuring murder to cater to a secret audience of weirdos that are willing to pay top dollar, sometimes invoking almost Illuminati and Skull and Bones levels. And this movie doesn't have that because it's about a psychopath who's filming these things on his own. The main character is Mark. He is the titular peeping Tom. He works as a cameraman, but moonlights as a pornographer, and his victims are all actresses or sex workers. And the idea of sex workers being the go-to victims in these kinds of things definitely becomes a standard later on. In some cases, it's to comment on or even indict capitalism, puritanical repression, misogyny, and our values regarding these things. And sometimes it's just a shitty, exploitative, cheap way of propagating those values. Mark's weapon of choice in this film is a spike in the leg of his camera's tripod. He also uses a mirror that's attached to the camera so his victims can see what the camera sees as they die. Now, today, this is a pretty on-the-nose idea. Like, yeah, we get it. But in 1960, this was very different. And it was still a kind of really intelligent and obvious way of foregrounding some of the commentary here, oh, notions of the male gaze and of complicity and voyeurism and even stardom. But not obvious enough, apparently, to satisfy people that were just disgusted by this film's very existence. It was critically maligned and publicly avoided. It killed Powell's career. It would be reevaluated a decade later by filmmakers and critics and then celebrated as ahead of its time. But in 1960, it didn't fly. As the 60s went on, news media exposed people to all kinds of footage of disasters and tragedies. There was plenty to satisfy what we call morbid curiosity. 
But in 1965, we were introduced to a new kind of media that incorporated actual tragic footage, ostensibly for the purpose of education in the form of what we now call scare films, driver's ed safety instructional movies. Now, the big one in 1965 was called Safety or Slaughter, and it had a host dryly sort of delivering cautionary tales accompanied by footage of totaled cars, cars on fire, and bodies being pulled from wreckage. This trend would continue throughout the 70s with films like Mechanized Death, Wheels of Tragedy, Options to Live, and many other titles, some of them featuring gallows humor and a self-aware sense of irony. In 1968, a lot of the global tension of counterculture challenging the establishment would sort of swell in a series of events, including assassinations, large-scale mass mobilization, protests, general strikes, and other things of that nature. Most notably here would be the 1968 Democratic National Convention protest that spiraled into violence and chaos and was used as the backdrop for Haskell Wexler's fictional film dealing with media and representation and the ethics therein, 1969's Medium Cool. Now, there is no real horror element here beyond you know, existential and social horror, but it was a really well-publicized event that unfolded in front of film cameras shooting a fictional narrative film. This was pretty new. In 1969, of course, there was the party of Woodstock in August, but in December, another event happened that would be captured on film, and this is, of course, the concert at Altamont, in which, during the Rolling Stones' performance, a man named Meredith Hunter was murdered by Hell's Angels. Only a year later, the documentary that captured this event, Gimme Shelter, was released in theaters. The footage of the incident in question is actually foregrounded in the movie and studied pretty carefully in it. And in the book Killing for Culture, an illustrated history of death film from Mondo to Snuff by David, I'm going to butcher this, Karekis, and David Slater, which is a book that I owe a lot of my research for this episode to, they pause it regarding Gimme Shelter. In filming it, they have made the action exist more, which is a simple little line that goes a long way to kind of describe this notion of permanence and of relevance that the media can give to a significant event. And that's something that no doubt the audiences who saw Gimme Shelter had to reflect upon when they saw it in theaters in December of 1970. Now, earlier in that year, We, of course, had the Kent State Massacre, in which National Guardsmen killed four students at Kent State University in Ohio. It's often remarked that that event was sort of a death knell of the activism and energy of the 60s. That means that in just two years, from 1968 to 1970, that wave swelled, crested, and broke on the shore. Sort of marking that time is a film that was made in 1967, but not released until 1973, which we've discussed on this podcast before. It's called David Holtzman's Diary. It was directed by Jim McBride and stars Lewis Minor Carson, a.k.a. L.M.K. 
Kit Carson, who wrote Texas Chainsaw Massacre Part 2. And this film doesn't pertain very much to the subject of snuff or of morbid curiosity in the sense of shock film, but it does give us a personality in the character of David Holtzman, who is definitely a sociopath, who reflects some of the same characteristics and traits as Mark from Peeping Tom. And the film concerns gays and voyeurism and the use of media and literacy and how media affects our worldviews. You know, the, the allegory of the cave is in there, themes of alienation. It's essentially the portrait of a privileged, young, straight, white, cis male with nothing to say and no social circle to speak of, who has completely been educated and socialized by the media. He fetishizes his camera equipment. He socializes with his camera equipment. He interviews himself. He stalks women. So not only does it concern some of the themes we're talking about and present us with a character who would feel right at home in a horror movie, sort of a Patrick Bateman analog, it also is a straight-up pseudo-doc. And arguably almost purely a found footage narrative film. It's not uh, audiences at the time who saw it when it opened in 1973 in New York believed that it was an actual documentary until credits rolled at the end in some cases. And it establishes a lot of the tropes and conventions that we have come to be familiar with in pseudo-docs and in found footage. The self-interview, the constant philosophizing... He uses voiceover to reflexively say hello to people he filmed on the street earlier. So, like, they can't hear him, but we hear him trying to say hi to them. Obviously, a lot of these people did not know they were being filmed, did not consent to being filmed. They cover their faces. Some people try to take the camera from him or cover the lens up. It also comments on our desensitization to certain stories in the media by playing radio news broadcasts of a riot in Newark and policemen killed by snipers. There is definitely commentary on the male gaze here. There's point of view footage of him stalking women, which is a thing that comes up later in slasher movies and exploitation movies like Halloween or Maniac. He records his girlfriend without her consent. She is made visibly uncomfortable by the camera and he tells her to ignore it, demonstrating his privilege. He spies on his neighbor, even calls her while he's spying on her. He films tense conflicts with other people. He interviews his one and only friend who kind of offers up some prescient suggestions about what people want to see. He suggests that David get naked or reveal secrets about himself, which is something that we become familiar with through reality television later. There are a lot of confessionals. There's a very interesting sequence for the time where he fixes the camera on the television set and records like an entire night of programming and then plays it back at twice the speed, which is something that, you know, if someone did it nowadays, you'd be like, yeah, I get it. You're a college sophomore who's trying to make a point. But in 1967, this would have required some more effort. It would have required some deliberation. It also ends in this very innovative way where he finishes the film by using a photo booth and a duo disc. And one of his last lines is, I wish I would have learned something. I mean, nowadays we talk about, you know, the din of media 
and how there's like a cacophony of voices and no one listens. Everyone's just trying to get their words in. And the leveling of the access to the fields of influence is created this noise and it's hard to filter through it but this was in 1967 and it's making that point because here we have a man who's been raised by the media who talks in references to films and criticism about films so even more removed from reality and treats his camera equipment like they're people and he just has nothing of value to say because his worldview is so limited but he knows in his heart that he has to say something because he's compelled to and then it ends with this reference to Bartleby the Scrivener where he says I would have preferred not to have done this and I did it and it's it's very innovative it still feels pretty fresh it's not the coming of age story of a man struggling with his draft number coming up that a log line or synopsis of this movie would have you believe it is. It's very much about isolation and the dangers of that isolation and responsibility and the potential pitfalls of a society where people talk without listening. And even though it was made in 1967, it still felt relevant when it was released in 1973. And it still feels relevant today. Predating this film is renowned cinema verite non-fiction documentary Frederick Wiseman's Titty Cut Follies, which challenged audiences in 1967 with a very frank look at a state-run hospital for the criminally insane. He followed that up with his next film, Hospital, which is a very frank look at the goings-on of hospitals by offering the very naked problems of one as an example. And it is maybe only relevant here because I feel that Wiseman's fly-on-the-wall observational approach to such bothersome material is responsible for both engaging and desensitizing us to certain things. Okay, so I backpedaled a little bit. Let me catch back up. Speaking of the segue from the 60s into the 70s, pardon me if this metaphor is a complete mess, but if Kent State was the death knell of the innocent idealism of the 1960s and Altamont, arguably its death rattle, then in the summer of 1969, 2,800 miles from Woodstock, New York, it was read its last rites in California. We're talking Charles Manson and the Manson family. When the Spawn Ranch was raided in 1969, authorities recovered an NBC camera that the Manson family stole out of a van earlier that summer, reportedly to film their own version of home movies. But in 1971, Ed Sanders, poet, musician, member of the band The Fugs, and arguably one of the defining voices of the 60s generation, published a book called The Family, the story of Charles Manson's dune buggy attack battalion. And in this book, we have our first reference to snuff films by name. He alleges that the Manson family made snuff films, possibly using that camera stolen from the NBC TV van, along with three other Super 8 cameras that the family was allegedly in possession of. The reference to these snuff films is only backed up in the book by an interview with an anonymous source who claims to be a former family member, and claims that while 
while they know of the existence of a single film depicting a dead, beheaded woman on a beach, they admit that they haven't actually seen it. And even here, with the coining of the term snuff, we do not have that implication of a large network of camera-toting murderers satisfying the twisted desires of a secret clientele. What we have instead is a much-talked-about cult led by an enigmatic lunatic who engaged in a lot of fucked-up activities, including brutal, seemingly ritualistic murders. And, hey, they had some cameras, so maybe they filmed it. Now, rumors have circulated far and wide about what they shot with those cameras, but not so much as a single frame of actual footage has ever surfaced. What we do get a handful of years later is the snuff chicken coming home to roost in American theaters. In 1971, the same year that Ed Sanders' book first mentioned the word snuff, Michael and Roberta Findlay, who you may be familiar with, Roberta Findlay did go on to make several other low-budget genre films, shot a movie called Slaughter. It was cheap, it was seemingly unfinished, it was shot in Argentina, it was shot MOS, and it was shot for $30,000. It was basically a retelling of the, at the time, known narrative of Charles Manson and his family, more or less. It had some gaps shoddily filled in to varying degrees of creativity, and it was passed on by its original distributor, Fanfare. It was then screened for Alan Shackleton of Monarch releasing. At the time, Shackleton was wasn't interested, but he held on to the print anyway. By 1975, the rumors of the Manson family snuff films had permeated the national consciousness, and Alan Shackleton, who was a student of the post-William Castle School of Exploitation, Promotion, and General Getting Away With Shit, had a stroke of marketing genius when he realized he still had the print of Slaughter. He shot a new scene to tack on to the film's previous non-ending, in which the film was revealed to be a film being shot and its director, with the crew, brutally murder a female production assistant. Then, he retitled the movie Snuff, Natch, and decided to release it. Using the film's poor technique and production as a selling point for the implication that it depicts real murder, Shackleton began a pre-internet prototypical viral marketing campaign by calling press outlets to anonymously inform them of an actual snuff film that had been smuggled into the U.S. from South America and was being sought by the FBI. This is genius. It's twisted genius, but it's still genius. Shackleton realized here they could use what would normally be interpreted as weaknesses to the film's benefit. And that's something that has become a trope, really, a convention in found footage films, uh, you know, this idea that something that would, in a normal, traditional narrative motion picture, harm your suspension of disbelief is used to cement the reality of a found footage film. You know, things like poor camera work, booms dipping into the frame, naturalistic dialogue that isn't necessarily interesting, awkward acting performances, a lack of editing, an absence of professional technique overall. And here it was being used deliberately to sell a film as realistic. Now, by scheming in this sort of William Castle-esque way, 
to stir up publicity for this film by anonymously tipping off journalists and the like to the existence of this film, he maybe got more than he bargained for. In New York, Shackleton had to deal with the police and a DA investigation and had to produce the actress from the film to settle the case. You know, shades of Diodato and the cannibal holocaust story there again. He had been publicly non-committal to the idea that the movie was fake in previous interviews, sort of cavalierly being like, I I don't know if it's real or not, Uh, which, you know, doesn't help when the police come knocking and he has to be like, oh, no, 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 it's definitely not real. He also stirred up controversy in women's groups. This is the era of second wave feminism and now. And and so women's groups were protesting this film. The feminist protesters had to focus on the film's pornographic angle because the violence had been decided to be fake and there's no real legal recourse for accusations of misogyny so they had to focus on the pornographic angle when protesting snuff and they had varying success there in some cities it got DAs or other authorities to ban the film but in others it just brought more press and more attention leading to box office success now we can ask questions about how we feel about this Um, state censorship of ideas and images we find deplorable versus the marketplace and public sphere of expression, you know, and how we decide what is irresponsible or harmful in art. And we've had that discussion over and over again. But what it does here for horror is it takes this idea of snuff introduced by Ed Sanders in the Manson Family book and and previously implied in the narrative of Peeping Tom that there are sick people out there that will kill people and film it. And it creates a mythology around it and implications resulting from it. And capitalizing on the newly expanded parameters for how a genre film can push the envelope and how audiences test their thresholds thanks to the success of films like Last House on the Left and The Texas Chainsaw Massacre, in tandem with sneaky, resourceful, maybe underhanded publicity tactics, tied that mythology and those implications to the genre and delivered them to a wider audience than previously possible. And we have, in the wake of this, several exploitation movies in the 1970s and a few mainstream movies in the 1970s that run with these themes. Now, of course, previous to the release of Snuff, we had Christine Chubbuck's on-air suicide in 1974 in Sarasota, Florida. If you're not familiar with this story, she was a television news personality who famously killed herself with a handgun on air after making a statement about the sensationalism of violence specifically on her station's programming. And then in 1976, we had the movie Network. Look, I don't want to talk too much about Network. I wrote a paper on it in college. I've seen that movie way too many times. It's a masterpiece, of course. And while the Chubbuck incident predates the film, it did not inspire it. Initially, Patty Chayefsky had actually pitched Network as a television series in 1968 and then had to adapt it for a feature film. There is supposedly, in one draft of the script, a reference made to Christine Chubbuck after that happened, but was cut out from the subsequent shooting script. We also had exploitation films that featured snuff 
as a narrative element in both Emmanuel in America and Last House on Dead End Street in the 70s, the same year that Snuff was released. The notorious Zapruder film of the assassination of President John F. Kennedy was shown on television for the first time when it was broadcast on Goodnight America, hosted by Geraldo Rivera, of all people. Now, this film had been the subject of controversy and discussion in the national consciousness by this point for 12 years, and it was still a startling thing for people to watch. In 1978, NBC aired the infamous Jim Jones tape. In 1979, journalist Bill Stewart was killed in Nicaragua in front of rolling cameras, and that was rebroadcast across the world. Also in 1979, the narrative film Hardcore opened in theaters. Hardcore from 1979 is not a horror movie. It's more of a crime revenge movie, and it features George C. Scott playing a conservative Midwest western father who journeys to California to look for his teenage daughter who has run away and has started making porn and slowly unravels this really seedy underbelly of drug dealers and pornographers and murderers and yes, snuff filmmakers. It does have a found footage narrative component and it does have a bummer ending. And while it's not horror, it's pertinent to this discussion because it introduces this idea of the criminal underbelly and, as has previously been hinted at, now explicitly firmly locks it into a story where snuff films are made and consumed. In a somewhat mainstream motion picture with big names in it, Emmanuel in America and Last House on Dead End Street both also featured this idea in their narratives, but those were exploitation films. This is the big time. It also problematically suggests this slippery slope that we will see time and time again. The gateway idea of a troubled young woman turns to sex work and then quickly gets sucked into this world of human trafficking. And it's a narrative that has become so rooted in our social consciousness that we now see things like SESTA that are exploiting that implied connection between sex work and human trafficking and this criminal underworld. And that's not to say that there isn't human trafficking. There most definitely is. But stories like this confuse the issue by stripping all agency away from sex workers and making them seem to be these corrupted victims. And it's, I am definitely going down a rabbit hole right now. So let me pull back. And this is all taking us into the 1980s. And in the first year of the 1980s, of course, we get Cannibal Holocaust. As I've said before, I don't want to get too far into this movie. There's plenty of information out there about it. The Ruggiero Diodato having to produce the actor to get out of legal trouble. We've seen that kind of story behind the scenes of found footage horror movies before, and we will see it again. But yes, Cannibal Holocaust the first pseudo-documentary to feature found footage as a narrative component that then shifts the focus of the story to the found footage, which we also will see again. Cannibal Holocaust was inspired by the Mondo film tradition, which began in 1959 with European Nights and then solidified by Mondo Kane and continued on through the 60s and 70s, including Echo from 1963, which features that footage of the Grand Guignol, which we discussed earlier. And it was also inspired by previous Italian cannibal films. Now, Cannibal Holocaust takes it all as 
step further with really poignant commentary on the manipulative nature of media and the white gaze. Because in this film, the filmmakers are the evil threat. And we can talk about the actual animal cruelty in this film, uh, especially if you want to tie it to Edison's electrocuting an elephant from 1903. But I don't really want to get into that. I'm not for it. I don't like watching it. Cannibal Holocaust has some really interesting points to make. It was inspired by a lot of historical things, and it in turn inspired a lot of historical things to come. But I don't want to dwell too much on the film, other than to maybe also make note of the fact that Actual execution footage is used in Cannibal Holocaust, but in the context of the film is referred to as faked footage, which creates another interesting paradox within the movie. Now, as far as Cannibal Holocaust's place in this and the place of the Mondo films in general and their exploitation of our morbid curiosity through shock footage, often racist, often xenophobic, usually misogynist or homophobic, homophobic to play with the idea of both revulsion and titillation much in that Grand Guignol tradition, sometimes with the added social commentary, sometimes not, probably most often not. I think it's important to recognize the Mondo film tradition's role in giving us another movie that would further and maybe more profoundly grab at our notions of morbid curiosity, and that is 1978's Faces of Death. Yes, we are jumping backwards in the timeline just a little bit here, but bear with me. Faces of Death was not the first film of its kind to explore death. It is predated by Stan Brakhage's 1971 art film take on the subject, The Act of Seeing with One's Own Eyes, and by 1972's more ethnographic effort of the dead, and 1975's more documentarian-style Death, the Ultimate Mystery. But Faces of Death was the film to take the Mondo tradition of blurring the line between fact and fiction and to strip it of most of its documentarian pretense and repackage it as a hardcore shockumentary to present the material as something of a dare to the viewer. It was commissioned by a Japanese company who wanted to do a National Geographic-style movie about death. The filmmakers cobbled together footage from news stations and archives. The film itself is hosted by a quote-unquote Dr. Francis B. Gross. And only roughly about one-third of the footage presented is authentic. The rest of it is staged. And if I recall correctly, only one scene actually showcases a death unfolding in front of you. And while the film did earn an impressive $35 million when it played theatrically. It is really its coincidental place in the dawning video age, I think, that gave it its success. If you are of my generation, then you will recognize Faces of Death as something of a relic from your youth, a whispered about rite of passage or something of that nature. By this point, the idea of horror fans challenging themselves 
themselves with the newest and most transgressive in gore or brutality was a pretty standard element of the fandom. Now, Faces of Death was not actually banned in 40-plus countries. It did spawn six sequels and countless imitators, including 1993's Traces of Death, which had more actual authentic footage in it. The year after Cannibal Holocaust, we had uh, The Killing of America in 1981, which was a Japanese-American co-production that is one of the few of the Faces of Death imitators that actually positions itself like it has something to say with a straight face. And this is all just to say that at this point, after Faces of Death in 1980 with Cannibal Holocaust, what we see is a fork in the road. The Mondo subgenre had essentially died off. But with the advent of home video, Faces of Death and Cannibal Holocaust were able to reach new audiences. And much like the Mondo subgenre reinvented the early ethnographies pioneered by things like Robert Flaherty's Nanook of the North and dressed them up with exploitation flair, Faces of Death took the Mondo subgenre, retooled it, and gave birth to the new hardcore shockumentary watch this if you think you can handle it subgenre, focused on what J.G. Ballard would call the horrors of the real. And Cannibal Holocaust took many of its conventions and created the new and much slower to grow subgenre of found footage narrative horror. Each path dancing on both sides of the line between reality and make-believe while grinning like skulls. In 1983, David Cronenberg made a movie called Videodrome. Duh. If you haven't seen Videodrome, stop listening to this podcast right now and go watch Videodrome. It is just another continuation of all these themes. The media's responsibility to the viewer, the viewer's complicity in violence, what people will resort to when their morbid curiosity isn't satisfied, etc. It's about James Woods. Yeah, He's an asshole, and it's hard to watch him now, knowing what we know about him. He plays the president of a television network who has become bored with his station's sex and violence smorgasbord and is looking for something new and something edgier, and he stumbles upon what appears to be live-broadcasted snuff. And it's Cronenberg, so there's lots of body horror, there's lots of commentary, examining themes of transgression. It really is just one of the... finest examples of what we're talking about here, because it's also very artful and very confusing and very imaginative. It ultimately seems to take a stance against the sensationalism of violence and the resulting desensitization of audiences, but without seeming preachy or self-righteous about it. It definitely is playing in the same dirt as other films, even if its head is higher in the clouds about it. Now, as we move through the 80s, we get several other examples of the shape of things to come. In 1985, a Japanese filmmaker begins a series called Guinea Pig. The first two films are essentially found footage-ish pseudo-snuff. The four subsequent films involve supernatural or science fiction elements and incorporate artistic ideas and some philosophical subtext. But the first two films, especially the first one, are 
pretty much made to look like we're watching something really happening. Even though there are edits and camera movements and the telltale signs of technique, they are by many accounts very convincing. I can't personally vouch for that because I haven't seen them and I won't. But by many accounts, they are convincing. So convincing, in fact, that in 1991, Charlie Sheen was given a copy of the second film, Guinea Pig, Flowers of Flesh and Blood, and upon viewing it, reported it to the FBI because he believed that it was really snuff. The FBI, as it turns out, had already been looking into investigating the film. This investigation prompted director Hideshi Hino to show them the making of documentary that he produced in 1988, detailing how the many gore effects were done. Again, more shades of the Ruggiero Diodato story. The second film depicts a man in a samurai outfit abducting and dismembering a woman with a katana. The fifth film in the series was reportedly found in the video collection of Tsutomo Miyazaki, who was known as the otaku killer in the late 80s, which sparked a media debate about horror movies and manga influencing serial murderers in the early 90s. This is a conversation horror fans are familiar with, and it will come up again on our shores. In America in 1986, John McNaughton, maybe better known to you as the director of Wild Things, made a movie called Henry Portrait of a Serial Killer. It is quote-unquote definitely not based on serial killer Henry Lee Lucas, but also it definitely is based on serial killer Henry Lee Lucas. The character names are the same. The inconsistent confession details from the Henry Lee Lucas case are also present through this really interesting use of post-mortem bodies with audio played over them, only implicitly tied to Henry through editing. And the character in both the movie and in real life served time for killing his mother. It's a very interesting movie. I'm hesitant to recommend it unless you can handle things like this. It's got Michael Rooker, who's always very good in the title role, making it that much more intimidating. And while it doesn't dwell on a lot of the themes regarding media that we're focusing on in this episode, there is a sequence in it where two killers use a VHS camera to record their home invasion and murder of a family. And it's a very hard scene to watch, but it also does serve as a found footage horror component and and pops up another bullet point in the timeline of serial killers filming their killing. On January 22nd, 1987, Pennsylvania State Treasurer Bud Dwyer called a press conference and then, as cameras rolled, killed himself with a 357 Magnum. This footage was broadcast across the state of Pennsylvania and, along with Christine Chubbuck's on-air suicide, became one of the most notorious examples of shock footage part of the underground tape trading scene and post-mondo zine sleaze scene. In 1988, we have another horror film concerned with the idea of snuff, and this is Toshiharu Ikeda's Evil Dead Trap, in which a late-night television personality who has been asking her viewers to send her extreme footage to show is sent a snuff film with a rather graphic killing in it, including an eye-stabbing that is almost definitely a reference to Unchen Andalu, at least for my money. By investigating the footage and some of the landmarks seen in the opening sequences of the snuff, she tracks down the location and with a crew goes to this 
what looks like an abandoned factory, but is an abandoned military installation. And one by one, her crew starts getting picked off. The film more or less plays like an Argento homage. It's got a very goblin-esque score. It's very artfully directed. Its camera movements are very Italian-looking. The kills are, for the most part, spectacularly gory, with plenty of blood. And also probably worth mentioning is that they almost seem like a precursor to the saw traps in a way. It does have a ridiculous, ridiculous third act twist that also appropriately feels rather Italian exploitation. But it is an indulgent, flashy, supernatural horror movie with a snuff narrative element in the form of a found footage component. It spawned two sequels that have nothing to do with the first film whatsoever. And as far as these themes in 80s horror are concerned, Evil Dead Trap is a little ahead of the curve. Rounding out the decade of the 80s is 84 Charlie Mopic, which is a pure found footage war movie about a combat cameraman making a training video who ends up with a team of Green Berets behind enemy lines in Vietnam. That's right. It is a Vietnam War found footage movie. It's almost like the anti- Rambo, and it came out in 1989, so a little late to the commentary on the media's presentation of that war party, but it's there, and it's found footage in the same year that UFO abduction was made. So now we are moving into the 90s. Now at this point, let's stop and assess where we are. The 90s are the serial killer decade. You have true crime, you have psychological thrillers, you have have, as we mentioned in the previous episode, real-world horror was taken and rebranded, and fantasy horror was deconstructed into postmodern comedy, indicting our own fascination with the macabre while rewarding the detached enjoyment of it. The films that reference snuff even the ones that employ a found footage component are almost never straight-up horror movies. They are psychological thrillers. They are crime movies. Uh, They are even black comedies. And in the previous episode, we theorized about what happened to horror, why it became so self-conscious, why people were shying away from the genre when they were making serious motion picture efforts. But I think there's a separate reason when it comes to what we're talking about in this episode. We're going to have to rewind a little bit. If you're familiar at all with the concept of the satanic panic, some of this is going to sound familiar to you. Because in the early 90s, we had something of a snuff panic. By this point, the word snuff is rather ubiquitous and is tagged to a lot of things, usually involving crime, satanic worship. Throughout the 70s and 80s, second wave feminism was engaged in a fight against the misogyny of the pornography industry. And in some cases, the word snuff popped up in these discussions. It had also been speculated that snuff films had been made by both the Zodiac and the Green River Killers. In 1981, Adam Walsh was abducted. If you're familiar with this case, you know what happened. His head was found, and this kicked off a speculation of ritualistic murder, possibly a satanic 
cult involvement, which of course turned out not to be true, but it led to the foundation of the Adam Walsh Child Resource Center, which at one point held a conference to discuss snuff movies. And in the executive director's address at this conference, Alan Shackleton's tip-offs to press outlets to promote the film Snuff were referenced by the executive director as evidence of the existence of actual snuff films. In 1983, a child abuse case in the small town of Jordan, Minnesota, erupted into a well-publicized hunt for a snuff ring. It was later determined that children had made up stories about snuff films being made, but by then, of course, the damage had been done. The word had been spread. And as a result, every so often, the whispered rumors of a worldwide snuff industry would begin again. And sometimes they were tied to real-life cases, and sometimes those cases actually had video evidence of certain individuals abducting or abusing people that they later killed, but never actually involved filmed murder. The rumors often carried racist or xenophobic undertones, usually referencing South America, Southeast and East Asia, and Eastern Europe as the source locations for phantom snuff films. And in the early 90s, in 1992 and 1993, both The Guardian and The Independent newspapers in the UK would announce the discovery of snuff films and hyperbolic headlines, claiming that rings had been busted and stashes had been uncovered by authorities. In 1992, it led to nine raids being conducted. In 1993, it led to 20 raids being conducted. And in 1995, it was reported that a snuff film had been found at a school. In all of these cases, it turned out that the snuff films in question were actually just exploitation horror movies. In the case of the school discovery, it was Faces of Death. The raids would turn up movies like Cannibal Holocaust or Bloodsucking Freaks or Last House on the Left. And you can say what you will about the content or artistic merit of these films. They are not snuff. And if snuff films were real, if there really were a shadowy cabal of snuff filmmakers operating in secret, abducting and murdering innocent people on camera to satisfy the perverse desires of faceless sadists, then treating these movies as such is an insult to the suffering of those victims. But because of the sensationalistic nature of headlines and the press wanting to summon forth the snuff boogeyman once again, horror movies movies would now be tied to the as-of-yet unproven but still terrifying idea of a global network of people murdering innocent victims on camera and selling or exchanging the footage with each other. And of course, as a result, these stories were often used to condemn the genre wholesale once again. In 1992, a Belgian student film shot on 16mm black and white would mine the concept of morbid curiosity and the media's hand in violence 
for laughs in a movie called Man Bites Dog. Originally titled Coming to Your Neighborhood Soon, which is an interesting play on conservative fears and motion picture advertising, Man Bites Dog tells the story of a documentary crew following a professional serial killer named Ben. How does one become a professional serial killer? Good question. I can't find it on LinkedIn anywhere. Like French New Wave was inspired by American Noir, this film was inspired by American reality crime shows like Cops and America's Most Wanted, which was a show hosted by John Walsh, Adam Walsh's father. But it's also hard not to notice parallels to David Holtzman's diary in the lead character Ben's self-presentation and self-congratulatory attitude and all of his kind of masturbatory philosophizing. Man Bites Dog is a satire, is an extremely bleak, dark comedy, and it's unique in that it portrays a genuine psychopath dressing and acting like a stereotypical contract killer. Now, perhaps it's drawing a connection to and maybe a line against the popularity of gangster iconography at the time. This is around the time that mob stuff starts to get big again. Or it could even be just a simple aesthetic nod to the French New Wave and its use of gangster imagery. It has a very mean-spirited sense of humor. Ben jokes about weighing bodies down. He jokes about saving bullets in a scene where he scares an old woman into a heart attack and calls it granny snuff, thereby using the actual terminology that we've become familiar with now. It is very problematic by Well, I was going to say today's standards, but really any standards, if you have a certain level of compassion, there's racism, there's homophobia, there's misogyny, there's sexual assault. But as bothersome as these things are, and don't get me wrong, they are bothersome, and I'm not trying to make excuses for them, but it's possible they might not be played specifically for laughs here. They might be there to challenge the viewer, to make you look at yourself, because Ben's not a good guy. He's not a hero. We're not supposed to like him, just like we're not supposed to like Mark in Peeping Tom, and we're not supposed to like David Holtzman. These are the problems. Ben is the problem. Even more so, our enabling of people like Ben is the problem, and I feel like that's the space where this film really tries to swing. It's criticism of the media's complicity. There is, you know, in a pre-Anchorman scene, the crew runs into another rival film crew making a documentary about a rival killer, and they kill that crew. There's a really interesting scene with uh, Ben's parents being interviewed, and it was shot using the lead actor who played Ben's actual parents who legitimately believed that Doc was being made about their son, which is fascinating to watch knowing that. It's hard to recommend this movie because of all of the more offensive elements in it, but for its time, you know, this early 90s kind of proto-edgelord, cynical, shitty, mean comedy, it is making a point through all of that. And it's a point that I think resonates. It might not resonate as much today as it did then, but it's there. And the film itself is a part of this discussion, especially because I think that by being one of the earliest films to talk about this in the decade of the 90s, it really does feel the most 90s in that it's full of irony and self-awareness in what seems like an indictment of the notions of apathy and 
desensitization. Now, in that same year, we have Michael Haneke's Benny's Video. It is also rather reminiscent of David Holtzman, but kind of seems to have like a taxi driver twist a little bit. It's about a disaffected kid whose whole life is media, his fascination with recording everything in this really sterile home with basically neglectful absentee upper-class parents somewhat accidentally making a snuff film because the character records everything that happens in his room with a camera. When he kills the girl, he kills with a bolt gun that he stole from a farm. It doesn't go according to plan, and it's almost like he didn't mean to film it. The killing is recorded, but in the found footage sequence displaying it, the action takes place off camera. So what you get is an empty bedroom with the sounds of someone being murdered. And that provides a bit of a negative space meditation on the on what we're watching. The lead actor's performance is so nuanced as to almost be sympathetic. In fact, there's a, there's a part of this that feels like a spiritual prequel to Peeping Tom. You see this kid kind of wrestling with his decisions and with the implications and it really is a good, well-made film. It does open with footage of a pig being killed by a bolt gun through a found footage filter, so sort of continuing this notion of animal cruelty and what happens when we start viewing our fellow human as nothing but animals or whatever. It's difficult to watch at times, but it is a really well-made film. Now this brings us to the mid-90s, where we see a trend of genre films that are not interested in lecturing us about our morbid curiosity or trying to pinpoint some slippery slope or even trying to revolt or titillate us with shock imagery. These are films that are dedicated to using the context of Snuff's more troubling implications to tell a story. Some are more concerned with the psychological aspects of these themes than others. Some are more interested interested in building an elaborate mystery than others, but all of them bring their own unique approach to this subject. And aside from the one obvious exception, the closest one to traditional horror is 1995's Mute Witness, directed by Anthony Waller, who would later go on to do An American Werewolf in Paris. But let's not hold that against him because this, his debut feature, is excellent. It was shot in Russia, and it concerns a speech-impaired makeup effects artist working on the set of a low-budget slasher film who accidentally witnesses a snuff film being made and is then pursued by the killers in a really excellent cat and mouse sequence. As the story opens up, various other figures are involved, including an Interpol agent who is investigating this underworld crime boss called the Reaper, who's in charge of an international snuff ring. And side note, the Reaper is played by Alec Guinness, Obi-Wan Kenobi, in his final film role. And there are some twists and turns and some really really great suspenseful moments. It opens with a nod to Halloween and more broadly to first wave slashers in general. Even old radio horror suspense serials with this radio broadcast announcement of an escaped mental patient. And then when the reveal happens during the opening credits that we are watching a movie being made, it sort of serves as a reversal to the ending of 1971's Snuff. The found footage component in this 
film is really kind of brilliant, and maybe even preemptively so, because the footage that the investigators are watching in that scene is not an actual snuff movie. It's the footage shot at the beginning of the movie of this death scene in the slasher movie that's being filmed within the film. And I don't want to give too much away because I think you should watch it if you are able to. It is really, really good. It's efficient. It's moody. It's just very well made. And there's a scene when the two killers who are being questioned by the police for their potential involvement in the possible snuff film, one of them offers this excuse. He says, if we want to murder someone, why would we film it? We're not stupid. And this line, I think in a lot of ways, serves as a pretty solid reason in general for why we, up to this point, have never actually seen any evidence of snuff films existing. In 1996, Alejandro Amenabar, director of Abre Los Ojos, The Others, and The Sea Inside, released his debut feature, Tesis, or Thesis. It does ask questions about voyeurism and and why we are drawn to horrific images. It's about Angela, who is a graduate student at a media and communications school and writing her thesis about audiovisual violence. She asks her professor if he can give her any help with this thesis, and she seeks out Chema. Chema is a horror fan with a reputation for being into violent movies, and it's your typical horror fan representation stuff with this guy. He listens to metal, he draws violent doodles in his notes, his apartment is decorated with graphic images and horror movie posters and bloody art. He has long hair and wears black graphic tees. He shows her a Faces of Death-esque video called Fresh Blood, while her professor tracks down a mysterious video in a hidden part of the school's tape vault. The next day, Angela comes to the school to find her professor dead in the screening room. She ejects the tape and takes it home. And this kicks off a winding mystery, because of course, the tape is a snuff film. Tasis is a very Hitchcockian mystery. It's very well shot, very well cut and paced. The performances are terrific. It's got a smart script. It has something to say, but it doesn't let its plotting or its themes get in the way of a moving and engaging story. There are MacGuffins and twists and reveals, found footage components, cat and mouse, and a really great bit of commentary that also kind of serves as an in-joke, maybe, for media literacy or film students or film enthusiasts in the form of a business-minded film professor. Now, you'll probably see some of the reveals coming, but it never tugs too far in any direction, even when dealing with red herrings. So I highly recommend it. And I would like to thank friend of the podcast and colleague Jennifer Romero for recommending this one to me. I had completely forgot about its existence until she recommended it. So thank you, Jennifer. Now it's 1996 and Rotten.com goes online, beginning the era of the shock sites. You remember shock sites, right? Well, they're still around, and Rotten.com ushered in all manner of not safe for work. 
or anywhere really gore accidents and other carnage for our morbid curiosity to feast on but put a pin in that as i'd said 1988's evil dead trap was a little ahead of the curve in this respect and at the end of this decade at the end of the 90s the japanese would reinvent the ideas of snuff as a horror catalyst once again with an almost total reversal of the thematic principle in 1998's ringu a film where the found footage itself is the killer and literally anyone with eyes is a potential victim. So the gaze is turned back onto the viewer through these surrogate characters, and the tragedy is watching us, and it's targeting us. And it does that in such a rich, supernatural horror context that we don't even realize it's doing that. Let's move on to 1999 and the film 8mm. Now, 8mm is 90s as fuck. Directed by Joel Schumacher, written by Andrew Kevin Walker, starring Nicolas Cage, Joaquin Phoenix, Catherine Keener, and even the warden from Silence of the Lambs. So yeah, real 90s. It also focuses on someone investigating a found snuff film with the mission of proving it to be false rather than genuine. Unfortunately, that's not how it works out, and this film, like many others before it, ties in the slippery slope of sex work and the criminal underworld to imply a vast network of snuff filmmakers and consumers. The found footage element itself is presented mostly obscurely, relying on Nicolas Cage's reaction to sell the gravity and impact of it, the effect effectiveness of that performance is debatable. I've heard people say good things. I've heard people say bad things. Some find it laughable. Some think it works. I'm not here to fall on either side of that. I think it's fine, I guess, but I'm more interested in the fact that the film has a strange attitude, and it's a peculiarly 90s attitude towards sex work in its narrative. It does have Joaquin Phoenix's character, who is sort of there to serve as a counterpoint to this idea of sex workers having no agency, or of everyone in a world either being a victim or a predator. He's reading In Cold Blood, which is a nice reference to our fascination with true crime. But of course, this is Andrew Kevin Walker and Joel Schumacher we're talking about, so everything starts to get very convoluted and silly and gimmicky and weird and even kind of flat while trying very hard to remain straight face towards the end. Do I recommend it? I don't know. But it's part of this discussion because now we have, from the mid to late 90s, these different cinematic and stylistic approaches to handling the connective tissue, which is that all of them, with the obvious exception of the one lone supernatural horror movie, imply the existence of a criminal underworld making snuff films. And this is where we kind of come to a sobering reality. For all the grittiness and realism the 90s postured so much about being into, it was still a time of safety and comfort for a great many Americans, especially the latter half of the decade. War had mostly become an abstract concept that for the most part didn't affect the everyday lives of middle America. Yugoslavia, Bosnia, Croatia, Iraq, Afghanistan, and the Gaza Strip were far away from us. For all of our obsession with true crime and terrorism and disaster and the madmen stalking our streets, remember that uh, Van Halen song, the Crystal Pepsi commercial? Crime was something that happened somewhere else. 
Yes. By the late 90s. New York City was already mostly cleaned up. The LA riots were years ago, and the residual tension wasn't something that white Americans had to think about anymore. The heroin problem wasn't news anymore. Crack was out there along with meth, but if you lived in the suburbs, it didn't affect you. We had talked about AIDS, so everyone was using condoms now, and safe sex was in vogue, and the disease had kind of lost its supernatural power for the privileged in this country. And I want to be clear, it's the perspective of the privileged that I'm talking about here right now. Yes, there were people suffering, but more often than not, they were presented to white middle-class Americans as cases to be pitied, and we were, for the most part, monitoring the evils of the world from a safe distance. The days of leaving your doors unlocked were long gone, and we knew there were problems out there, but they weren't invading our neighborhoods. They weren't coming into our schools or places of work. The phrase going postal had become a joke by now. If we recycled and voted Democrat and donated to charities and tried new foods and were polite, we had nothing to worry about. What was the worst that was going to happen? That was the attitude of a large number of Americans. The danger is out there, but we're safe from it. Well, not for long. Now, the new millennium would open us up to a host of new horrors in the real world, which would affect the genre. And one of those real-world horrors unfolded in front of us before the 90s were even over. On April 20th of 1999, the Columbine High School massacre captured the attention of news outlets and in turn captured the attention of the nation. In its wake, we were left with more questions than answers. And amidst all of the societal repercussions and implications ranging from education to gun control to mental health to bullying, a few concerns popped up that affected the horror genre and affected the idea of found footage. What we have come to call the basement tapes, or the Columbine tapes, were a series of five VHS tapes over four hours of footage in total filmed by the killers. Now, they were mostly of the two of them talking about their plans to carry out the shooting in a basement. They were transcribed by Time magazine, and excerpts and clips have been released here and there. But in 2015, the Jefferson County Sheriff's Department destroyed the tapes. Now, what we know about the tapes revealed an obsession with celebrity, with the concept of revolution, albeit a very juvenile one, first-person shooter games, and most tellingly, a penchant and obsession with the idea of deception, which undermines any conclusion you might be able to draw about celebrity revolution or first-person shooter games, because it reveals that these two individuals were psychopaths. Now, they famously discussed which director would make the best movie about them, settling on Quentin Tarantino or Steven Spielberg, but of course, because they talked about movies and the media and violent video games, once again, horror movies became the target of the moral majority 
Authority and other coalitions of overzealous, self-appointed culture police. And while the pixelated black and white security camera still of armed killers in a high school cafeteria and news footage of a student hanging more than halfway out of a top floor window to signal to police stuck with us for a while, it's not debatable that they paled in comparison to the barrage of horrifying imagery we would be clockwork oranged with just two years later. Now, it's not my job or the responsibility of this podcast to closely examine the effects of 9-11 on our society as a whole. I'm not taking string and thumbtacks to a bulletin board here. And you might even think it gauche or needlessly macabre to even invoke 9-11 on a horror movie podcast, but I think it bears mentioning here because it ties directly into what we're talking about. And this was a shared moment of tragedy witnessed by the majority of the species. Civilian and corporate news footage of planes striking buildings, collapsing buildings, people throwing themselves from impossible heights, looped over and over again by 24 hour news networks in the days, weeks, months, and even years to come were inescapable. They can never be unseen, and they reached into every facet of the human experience. And this may sound dismissive, but essentially, what happened on 9-11, and the way in which the world watched it happen, essentially amounts to a real-time snuff film witnessed by all It gave us an unthinkable new back wall and a new yardstick for what scares us. A month before the events of September 11th, in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, where George Romero revolutionized modern horror, a makeup effects artist and teacher at the Tom Savini School named Fred Vogel made a movie called August Underground. Inspired by the home invasion scene in Henry Portrait of a Serial Killer, Vogel decided that horror needed to be more transgressive, more brutal, for people to get the point. August Underground plays out like a purely found footage snuff film. It focuses on a man named Peter and his unnamed accomplice who operates the camera as they harass, attack, and murder random strangers. A brief note here. Look, I have not seen August Underground. I probably never will. This isn't my thing. As I've said before, if we're going to do the found footage thing, I want there to be a supernatural element to elevate the real-world setting, to open it up a little bit. I don't need my horror to sicken me. I don't need it to remind me of how bleak and awful the world is. My nihilism does not need any help. So I'm just not going to watch this movie. No judgment if you are going to watch it, or if you have watched it and you enjoy it, but I just feel like the things that are contained in this movie are not for me, and I don't need to challenge myself in this particular way. I am a little curious to check out the legendarily, supposedly realistic gore effects used in it, but it's hard enough for me to get through a regular, traditionally narrative torture porn feature, even when there are things like a story and characters to care about, or a greater point to be made with it. 
So without those things to carry me through, I'm just not interested. And August Underground does not have those things. It includes mundane outings such as trips to slaughterhouses, a cemetery, a visit to a well-known local tourist attraction in Pennsylvania, presumably to lend it some credibility and grounding in familiar territory. The footage is severely degraded and the camera operation is amateurish by all accounts. Any vague notion of technical polish or professional filmmaking is completely absent. So what we are left with here is pure found footage that is supposedly incredibly convincing. It is the first film in a trilogy with August Underground Mortem and August Underground Penance, uh, that final installment being released in 2007, predating the Poughkeepsie Tapes, which is the film that I will be discussing with Adam Todd Brown in a moment. Fred Vogel's initial distribution plan was to take 200 unmarked video copies and leave them around, just sitting out on benches at subway stations, etc. for people to find. The events of 9-11 made him rethink that, and he decided instead to just self-release those copies in 2002. There were still people who got a hold of it and believed it to be real. In 2005, while traveling to Toronto for Rue Morgue's Festival of Fear, Vogel was arrested and detained by a Canadian customs official for transporting obscene material. From what I understand, he had a new DVD release of August Underground and its sequel that he was intending to sell there, and they were seized, and he spent 10 hours in a Canadian customs prison before he was released, and his DVDs were not returned to him. If you are going to watch these movies, content warning. These films include necrophilia, pedophilia, sexual assault, rape, self-harm, homophobia, misogyny, mutilation, including a penectomy and a fetus removal, cannibalism, domestic abuse, child abuse, animal mutilation, drug use, drug addiction, suicide, and vomit and scat play. So, there you have it. From what I understand, the second film, Mortem, is the hardest to watch, the most disturbing of the three, so heads up on that. According to Vogel, he has larger social message to teach with these films and with his subsequent films, including an anthology film called Murder Collection Volume 1, which is a Faces of Death-like compilation where a host taunts the viewer about what they are watching. Vogel insists that he is not out to titillate, but to teach. He wants to confront people with the ugliness of reality and the depravity that human beings are capable of in order to get them to think about their role in it all. But in interviews, he does joke about fantasy, and it betrays kind of a weird pride about his subject matter. He will say that he is out to spread the sickness, quote-unquote, in the same conversation that he talks about his Catholic upbringing and says that he hopes his movies get him into heaven, quote-unquote. In March 2005, his cousin was murdered by brutally with a knife, and he says his first thought was that someone had been inspired to do so by his own movies. I don't know where I fall on this with Fred Vogel. I know that I'm not into these movies, but I am hesitant to say they encourage anything, especially without having seen them. 
So here we have 30 years after Ed Sanders' first mention of snuff, our first found footage, narrative, pseudo-snuff film with an IMDb page and everything. Now, I do want to rewind here a little bit again. In January of 2001, there was a motion picture called Series 7, The Contenders, which is a mix of found footage and pseudo-doc in a reality television style meant to simulate the finale of a long-running reality television show that takes place kind of in a dystopia where contestants are given guns and sent out to kill each other. It was inspired by Videodrome and Rollerball, but also, come on, Running Man, The Lottery, etc. It does serve as satire on reality television at a pretty early stage in the development of reality television game shows, because even though this film was released after the premieres of Survivor and Big Brother, its concept and production actually predate those shows. It was originally conceived and pitched as a television series back in 1998. So again, we have something a little prescient here. It harkens a little bit back to Man Bites Dog, but also plays it a little more earnestly at times, with some truly terrifying moments by implication, especially in the wake of Columbine, with all of the discussions about media violence that were taking place. And it could also be seen as an indirect inspiration for the Purge movies. In 2002, video of journalist Daniel Pearl's execution at the hands of an Al-Qaeda splinter group made its way to the internet and began the disturbing trend of beheading videos. Often featured on shock sites, these videos depicted the decapitations of abducted journalists and other civilians by fundamentalist groups like JTJ, and Muntada al-Ansar, and eventually even Mexican drug cartels. These videos are textbook terrorism. Propaganda meant to terrify people for ideological ends. They sparked discussions about free speech and the legal and ethical responsibilities of content aggregators before content aggregation was really much of a term. And they informed the ongoing debate about our morbid curiosity, a debate which would come to a head in this realm a little later. As we move on through the early 2000s to the mid-2000s, we have some more examples of found footage horror and pseudo-doc horror that work in this sandbox with these themes. There's 2003's Zero Day, which is a school shooting found footage drama. Not horror, but certainly with horrific subject matter. There's also 2003's The Last Horror Movie, which was inspired by Henry Portrait of a Serial Killer and concerns a killer wedding videographer. In 2006, there's a movie called Sandman. Now that's S. Ampersand M-A-N. It is a pseudo-doc by filmmaker J.T. Petty. And it's actually more than a pseudo-doc because for the most part, it's an actual documentary exploring death fetishism and shock video in underground horror. But it has this fictional narrative about a real snuff filmmaker woven in as a subplot. The film was originally intended to be a straight-up documentary in which Petty would interview pseudo-snuff filmmakers, including August Underground's 
Fred Vogel, in addition to a real-life peeping Tom from director J.T. Petty's Childhood Neighborhood. That's right, an actual person who had 191 tapes of his neighbors and was indicted at the time. When Petty secured funding to actually make the film, this actual criminal voyeur wanted nothing to do with it, so Petty had to concoct this fictional subplot about a pseudo-snuff filmmaker who's actually secretly making real snuff. And it's been a while since I've seen it, but I remember enjoying it, or at least being challenged and engaged by it. And because it's in a documentary style, the conversation that it has about themes of voyeurism and morbid curiosity and all that comes with it mostly get directly to the point rather than being relegated to backdrop or motifs. By 2007, the horror genre and horror fandom in general are sort of shambling around in a disassociative state. Audiences have been bludgeoned by the new French extremity movement, the clumsily moralizing torture porn subgenre ushered in by Saw and Hostel, the Rob Zombie grindhouse renaissance, low-budget adaptations of Jack Ketchum novels, the slick and polished remakes of slasher and X exploitation classics that display a cosmetic sheen while presenting new frontiers in cynicism and brutality. There's a disconnect here, and it's possible that a growing exhaustion with this bleak and cruel material led us to what would later be recognizable as a precipice before a new explosion in the genre. Found footage horror is about to strike it big with a return to supernatural subject matter. But before that can happen, in multiplexes across the country, a film seemingly advertising itself as a documentary chronicling a heretofore unknown serial killer's snuff collection enters into the arena through posters and trailers, and then with no official reason given, is pulled from the slate and doesn't come out. That movie was called The Poughkeepsie Tapes, and in the seven years that it took that film to find find release, a lot more happened. And be advised, this is where our timeline gets even darker. In the summer of 2007, two 19-year-old men, later nicknamed the Dnipropetrovsk maniacs, killed 21 people in Ukraine. No clear motive was ever established even after the pair were convicted, but during the investigation, authorities did discover that they had video-recorded several of their murders. This incited speculation that they were making snuff to sell on the internet. But no evidence has ever surfaced to corroborate this theory, and Ukrainian officials say that the claims have no validity. However, in December of 2008, one of their murder videos was leaked to the internet under the title Three Guys, One Hammer. Earlier in that year, the Canadian shock site BestGore.com launched. It continued the tradition of gore porn started by Rotten.com, and continued by 2000's Ogrish.com, which later became LiveLeaks, and by its spiritual successor, Gorgrish.com. Now, if you're familiar with the name BestGore.com, it might be because of the legal trouble that it found itself in in 2012, when site owner Mark Merrick was arrested and charged under an obscure Canadian obscenity law with corrupting public morals for leaving video of the murder of Chinese student Lin June up on the site, even after after learning of its source. Now at this point it might be pertinent
pertinent to list a few facts about the man who murdered Lynn June. He was a Canadian citizen born Eric Clinton Kirk Newman, but changed his name to Luca Magnata after he was convicted of fraud. He was a model and sex worker. He had auditioned for and been rejected from two reality television shows. He was prolific on social media with over 70 Facebook profiles and 20 websites that he started under different names. He regularly posted on the white supremacist website Stormfront, and prior to committing murder, he had posted self-made animal abuse videos on the internet. Lynn June, also known as Justin Lynn, was murdered in May of 2012. Shortly thereafter, video of his murder was uploaded to bestgore.com. I'm not going to get into the details. The video is 11 minutes long. I haven't watched it. I'm not going to watch it. But it was the video's posting that most likely led to the apprehension of Luca Magnata because the Gore site community helped in identifying and tracking him down. And this leads us to, if not a thesis, at least something of surer footing for beginning to wrap this timeline up. Because it takes us back to the line in Mute Witness, where one of the villains says, if we wanted to kill someone, why would we film it? We're not stupid. And that's key here. Because, exactly. Later on, films like 2013's The Den and 2014's Christie and 2018's Unfriended Dark Web would continue to propagate the myth of a snuff underworld and now ascribe it to the dark web. And every so often, this myth gets resurrected in legitimate journalistic outlets. But so far, there's been nothing concrete to suggest that this myth is a reality. The reality is far more mundane and, in fact, maybe more frightening. Because neither the Nipropetrovsk maniacs or Luka Magnata needed anyone to pay them to do what they did. And if they were concerned about getting caught, well, they shouldn't have filmed it. There likely is no snuff underworld on the deep web. The type of person who wants to watch another human being's last moments concluded by hazard or even human hands can find it almost anywhere, even if they're particular with their tastes. They don't need to hide behind usernames or VPNs or amass untraceable cryptocurrencies. They have never needed a connection at the docks or a speakeasy password or a Tor browser. It's out there. In newsreels and Mondo films and documentaries, driver's ed safety films, and on gore sites. And the types of people who would be on the supply side of such an arrangement don't need benefactors or patrons. The type of person who could kill someone and immortalize the act on video aren't motivated by money or artistic integrity. They utterly lack empathy. They aren't filling an order, checking off items on a list sent to them from a dummy email account. In all likelihood the type of person who would finance snuff and the type of person who would produce it are one and the same. And since things like the Columbine Massacre will always bring up discussions of life imitating art, if you want to look for representation of this in culture, in the same way that it could be argued that today's David Holtzmans are tomorrow's Peeping Tom killers, then today's MRA incels and Proud Boy fascists might be 
tomorrow's potential Luka Magnatas and Nepropetrovsk maniacs. And that has long been a terrifying idea mined by genre filmmakers, the notion that the psychopaths are among us. So let's wrap this up by talking about morbid curiosity and what it says about us. See, because I know what it feels like to be judged for what I watch as a horror fan, I'm hesitant to condemn anyone for watching the stuff you can see on these gore sites. A handful of years back, a co-worker of mine tried to show me a cartel beheading video, and I walked away from him. And when he followed me to try to get me to look at it again, I said, look, man, I don't want to see that. And he looked confused and maybe a little hurt. He likely felt like I was judging him. And to be honest, I was. I don't want to see stuff like that. But it isn't my place to tell someone else they can't see stuff like that. Fred Vogel himself, director of what many hold to be the most disgusting example of pseudo-snuff horror to date said of these gore sites, it is disturbing that viewing a real-life murder is at the click of a mouse. I hate that it is available to the public. People shouldn't see that shit. Not even me. So even Fred Vogel is averse to watching this kind of stuff. But recent studies in psychology and behavioral sciences have suggested that our morbid curiosity and desire to watch tragedy unfold probably has less to do with some revulsion titillation spectrum and more to do with our natural tendencies for empathy and self-preservation. It seems that by gawking at or rubbernecking another individual's suffering, we contextualize it and learn from it. We observe what happened to them and ask ourselves what's different about our behavior. How can we avoid that happening to us? Internet personality and founder of Vsauce, Michael Stevens, even released a video about our morbid curiosity where he cited a really old experiment about facial expressions with kind of a disturbing backstory. And it's actually kind of odd that he cited this experiment because if you read up on it, you'll find that the results of it were kind of inconclusive. But aside from that, in the video he released, he came up with a mnemonic acronym to describe what we get out of satisfying or indulging our morbid curiosity. He called it SCREAM, which stands for Strength, Catharsis, Reality, Exploration, Acceptance, and Meaning. And that's a good thing to keep in mind, because as long as one remains self-aware and critically vigilant when indulging morbid curiosity and can manage to maintain their empathy and resist being desensitized to human suffering to the point where that empathy erodes and the fascination with the imagery itself takes over, as long as one can do those things and honestly ask themselves questions about strength, catharsis, reality, examination, acceptance, and meaning, then exercising that morbid curiosity is is a normal reflection of human instincts and can be a healthy, albeit challenging, activity. And there are outlying reasons for this as well. It was, after all, the Gorsite community that identified Luca Magnata and aided in tracking him down. When terrorist groups tried taking credit for other videos on Gorsite, sites that they were not responsible for. It was that community that did their due diligence in refuting those claims. 
thereby limiting their propagandistic power. When Philando Castile's final moments were broadcast on Facebook Live, and when video of the police murder of Eric Garner circulated throughout social media, it awakened privileged white people to the harrowing reality of daily injustices suffered by communities of color. Anecdotally, I once posted on Facebook that I didn't want to see those videos, and two friends of mine, both young black men, patiently explained to me in the comments why my position was flawed and came from a place of privilege. Preceding the film's release in 1972, Last House on the Left's advertising campaign consisted of a tagline that has since become iconic in the genre. An authoritative voice cautions the potential viewer to avoid fainting, keep repeating, it's only a movie, it's only a movie, it's only a movie. And that goes hand-in-hand with the film and the extreme exploitation subgenre's reputation for being something of a test for horror audiences. But when it comes to watching actual footage of real-life disaster and death, that mantra provides no comfort because it is empty, because you know that what you are watching is reality, not a fiction. It's no longer only a movie. It's a record of tragedy. And the test is one without a safety net, so passing it is more crucial. A brief note before we get into discussing today's film, I know I've taken up a lot of time already, but my perfectionism and my need to avoid actuallys are ever strong. Between 2009 and 2010, filmmakers in the small Balkan nation of Serbia released two highly controversial films that tied snuff to pornography. Life and Death of a Porno Gang is more explicitly political, but a Serbian film, with its heavy leaning on disturbing narrative themes and graphic objectionable action, was the film that got more attention. I have not seen either, I likely will not see either, but I wanted to at least bring them up. Because a Serbian film has been banned in several countries. A whopping four entire minutes of footage had to be cut from it before it was allowed to screen in Great Britain. And eight years later, it remains a topic of passionate debate. When it screened at the American film market, a distribution rep fainted while trying to leave the theater to escape and ended up hitting his head and requiring stitches. This incident, reminiscent of the Grand Guignol, tradition for deliberately overwhelming audiences is often cited in arguments condemning the film. And while I personally know that I would not want to see the things depicted therein, I also think it's important to acknowledge context and to remember that when the film was made, that country and its people were still deeply haunted by the 1990s decade-long Yugoslav wars. When the film was made, Slobodan Milosevic hadn't even been out of power for 10 years. The Balkan region has centuries of bloody conflict, genocide, and ethnic cleansing in its history. And in the 2000s, war crime trials, human rights investigations, and the economic devastation resulting from United Nations sanctions were still affecting daily life in Serbia. So it might be easy for someone in America to read about what's in those films and write them off as meritless brutal 
brutality. But I would advise you to keep in mind that however evil the things in this fictional movie may be, they pale in comparison to the waking nightmares experienced by people in that country. And in regards to today's episode and the film we will be discussing, they serve as something of a watermark to illustrate just how far the envelope had been pushed between 2007 and 2014, when the Poughkeepsie tapes was released on demand for about a month before being pulled and then released on Blu-ray and DVD by Scream Factory in 2017. So without further ado, let's go ahead and talk to Adam Todd Brown about the Poughkeepsie tapes. Um, we're talking about the Poughkeepsie tapes. I po- pronounced that weird. Poughkeepsie tapes. Poughkeepsie. I mean, it's look. It's hard I don't, to find. I don't for one think thing. anyone's ever pronounced it correctly. I look how that word is spelled. Yeah, it looks like Poff Keepsie. Yeah, it it should be like Pow Keepsie. Yeah, Pow ke- or Po Po Keepsie. Po Keepsie. Because it's like dough. Poughkeepsie. But it's Poughkeepsie. Poughkeepsie. Anyway, the Poughkeepsie tapes. The Poughkeepsie tapes. 2007's... This is a difficult movie to track down. We should tell people that right up front. We should. Are Uh, we going to spoil this movie for people? Probably. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, 100%. And normally, you know, for the other films that we're talking about in this episode, I'm like fine with that because I think I've made my position on pseudo-snuff very clear. I'm not into it. It's not my thing. Right. So I kind of don't care if people... Also, the point of these movies is not... It's not like most of them have some big, you know, narrative that you need to... That needs to be fresh for you to appreciate it. Most of these things, it's... We know what it is. It's... Yeah, once you hear the premise of this movie, you know what you're getting, which is basically that they found this treasure trove, for lack of a better term, of tapes made by... By this serial killer mm-hmm. who was did, did they give him a name in the movie i don't remember yes it's the water street butcher the water street butcher however the water street butcher is also not an accurate term for the killer of this movie because the water street butcher is really just the name for one segment of the killings before they knew all the killings were connected right so the water street butcher is kind of like just a phase for this killer it's like sure. it's like you know when you talk about he puts Zig- up some numbers yeah you talk about ziggy stardust david bowie that's the water street butcher in <laughs> that's that phase <laughs> of the poughkeepsie Tapes right. killer this guy was the david bowie of serial killers yeah even though it's not real obviously yeah that's the thing but this is a this, film. this is a mockumentary it's a mockumentary pseudo documentary with a strong found footage component and it's and it's sophisticated it's it's well put together. Yeah, so this film was made in 2007 by John Eric Dowdle and Drew Dowdle, the Dowdle brothers. The Dowdle Am I pronouncing brothers. their names correctly? Sure, yeah, sure you not? are. Why not? It's not doodly? <laughs> <laughs> I'm just, you know, I'm going off Poughkeepsie here. And there's a lot of interesting stuff about, about this film's history before you even watch it, partly because a lot of people didn't get to see it. Yeah. For a very long time. It was, so it was made by them in 2007, and it was inspired by Henry Portrait of a Serial Killer, and Man Bites Dog, and Halloween, and Tarnation. It took a long time for them to make it. They were doing it for and of their own vision. They didn't have, it wasn't on spec. 
they didn't they didn't have a studio that had hired them to make this. It was just an idea that they had come up with because found footage was starting to become a thing at the time. And as John Eric Dowdle himself actually says in an interview, he says, we didn't have the money, but we had the time. So because no one was waiting for it or waiting for results from them, they could kind of just take as long as they wanted yeah. to make this thing. And it really shows. There's a lot of So when did patience. they start making it? 2005? So it didn't take that long. It's it when they started, is when they, I think they started developing it. And it was kind of released in 2007, right? No. So I saw it in 2007 because I got to see an advanced screener copy of it. it oh, okay. It yeah. did play at both Tribeca Film Festival and the Buttonumathon Film Festival in Austin, Texas. Yeah. Which, yeah. That's what I, that's what I mean. It, it like barely, it, it barely came people. out. Yes. Uh, but it did not get its actual theatrical release. It was scheduled to have. But there were trailers for it, too. There were trailers. Yeah, yeah. There were trailers on some big films. They spent some money promoting a movie that didn't come out. Yes. There were some big films that carried that trailer and standees, posters, you know, all that yeah. stuff. There was PNA behind it and then it just... Never came. <laughs> it never came. Yeah. There's probably a reason for that that we're not entirely sure of. Uh, what happened was the, when the film played at Tribeca, it was a big success. People at Tribeca Film Festival loved it. It was picked up by MGM for distribution. Yeah. And then MGM kind of put this restriction on the filmmakers where they didn't want the filmmakers to do any interviews about it because they wanted to stick to the kayfabe of the deal. They wanted to sure. kind of, you know, this is a studio that is at this point now nearly 10 years behind the curve on the idea of the Blair Witch Project or Last Broadcast right. where right. it's like, well, we got to stick to this conceit that, that these are real tapes and that it's a true story and that it's yeah. an actual documentary. They even tried that with Apollo. Was it Apollo 19 or Apollo, Apollo 18? Apollo 18. I always forget the yes. name of that movie. I love it. It's good. Okay. <laughs> You're going to bring that up every episode. I sure am. Shout out to Apollo 18. There we go. Uh, <laughs> okay. You get one or the other. You can't do both. What's wrong with you? Next time. Sorry. All right. So... When it played at Butnamathon, MGM had kind of put this the kibosh on the filmmakers doing any kind of interviews to be, you know, at, at the risk of revealing it to be a fictional film. The filmmakers did not like this. They did not that they did not share MGM's vision here. They thought that by this point, and they thought correctly, audiences and the internet, frankly, was just too sophisticated sure. for that kind of thing to go over anymore. In context of the film, sure, they want it to be presented as real. They want to do right. uh, the kind of the no-sleep subreddit thing with it, where it's like, we all know it's fake, but we're going to pretend it's real right, because it's right. more fun that way while we're watching it. So what happened at Butnamathon was the person who introduced the film introduced it as a legitimate documentary, keeping the kayfabe, saying <laughs> what you're watching is an actual documentary, and then also said that there would be a Q&A with the filmmakers, the documentarians, after the movie. Now, because of MGM's deal with these filmmakers, they could not actually do a Q&A. Right. So then the film starts playing, and we'll get into this in a moment, but you figure out pretty quickly that this is not true. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. It's, I mean, it's one of those things that you can suspend your disbelief and you can play along with it, but if you are actually watching it and looking for the holes, you know, if you're watching it right. being told that this is real, suddenly the bullshit detectors come on right. and, you, and you're actively, critically looking for holes in it. And if you do that with this film... Pretty quickly, you're going to decide I love the, this is bullshit. I love the irony of it just sailing through the Tribeca Film Festival and then 
hitting butt numathon and everyone's yeah. like, no, 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 no. <laughs> yeah, yeah. This is yeah. butt numathon, yeah, sir. This, look, that shit may may pass uh, Robert De Niro. You take that to Sundance. Yeah. <laughs> this is the ain't it cool news crowd. <laughs> we are the fucking paragons. <laughs> and they were. Uh, they really, it's really sad. <laughs> they were. <Yeah. laughs> but so, yeah, so immediately the audience turns on these filmmakers and turns on this film and it was a disaster and because they weren't allowed to address this in the Q&A after the film what it looked like was the filmmakers either that they were in on it or that they were fleeing a disastrous screening afraid of the negative press and afraid of confronting the audience yeah because they just weren't allowed to talk to anyone so that did not bode well for this film's future. And right. it might be, you know, ironically, this could be the case, uh, the opposite case of Blair Witch Project, where the internet served to destroy a found footage film. They were trying yeah. to use the the uh, the old Blair Witch trick to pass it over on everybody, but it backfired. And then, of course, you piss off the button audience. There's no turning back. And the next thing you know... Your direct Blu-ray yeah. <laughs> eight years later. So MGM pulled the release. And MGM says that that's not why they pulled the release. Okay. and they But they also have never given an official reason. That there are people out there that say stuff like this film was banned. It wasn't banned. It was in right. no way banned. The distributor just pulled the release. And that happens all the time. Yeah, that's... Like whenever you're scrolling through Amazon and you see like every famous actor in the world on one movie movie poster and you're like i've never heard of this movie what is this (laughs) and then you look into it it's like yeah they just pulled it last minute it's funny because it does happen a lot happens a lot films will get advertised i don't know if it happens that much anymore without i mean in in this age of the internet and and everyone knowing everything about the entertainment industry at all times basically where yeah but at least in this point you know the internet was no longer the wilderness (laughs) you know right it's no longer the uncharted territory that it was in the 90s but i feel like there wasn't as much press as far as like if a film got pulled sometimes you just didn't know why right uh because they had that power this is one of those cases where because i think because of the nature of the film because what the film's about maybe people are just trying to help that kayfabe along when they say that it was banned because it was too sick or the fbi stepped in or whatever they want to say about it yeah it's a little more of a fascinating story just because it's a found footage pseudo documentary horror movie so it's it's more fun i think to speculate on why why the film wasn't released then say I don't I can't think of another example besides before I wake off the top of my head oh uh, yeah but that was just the, because the, the Mike Flanagan movie yeah. you mean yeah. which is great by the way yeah, I did I end up watching it you know what I'll give you my thoughts on that film at a later okay we'll do a we'll do another chunk at some other time we'll do a Flanagan a Flanagan sees I'll definitely do a Flanagan sees that's short for season, everybody. Saves us time yeah. on the podcast when we can shorten words like <laughs> that. Because we need to save time. Yeah, so it's fun to speculate about these things, but it, it whatever MGM's reasons were, they're not they're not giving yeah, it up. It got pulled. It got pulled. Now, this didn't hurt the filmmakers at all because the Tribeca screening had gone so well that they found management and representation. And by the time it screened at Butnamathon, they were already signed on to do quarantine. Oh. So, so they're fine. They're fine. It yeah. didn't hurt them. In fact, John Eric Dowdle apparently found out that the film had been pulled while he was on vacation in Paris uh, with his wife, the uh, actress who plays Cheryl Dempsey in Poughkeepsie Tapes. Oh, wow. They were on vacation in Paris and a reporter called wanting a quote from him for a story about About the Poughkeepsie Poughkeepsie Tapes tapes. being pulled from release. Nice. And that was how he found out that his film was (laughs) not going to open in 2,000 theaters as was agreed upon. Right. 
Let's get to the actual film itself then. Uh, how many times have you seen it now? I've only seen it the one time. Okay. But it was pretty recently. I have now seen it three times. Uh, once in 2007, which I do not... I think we've been over this. I don't really remember it very well. Right. I got a screener uh, from work and, you know... Eh. Eh. You know, it was the time we were oversaturated with the torture porn stuff. The found footage sure, stuff yeah. was also kind of becoming... Yeah, I saw you know, a lot of... There have been a lot of movies recently that I've watched and been like, oh, yeah, I saw this in theaters. And I just... You just don't remember Did anything. not remember yeah. that. Yeah, I... I, I used to drink it. <laughs> the movies a lot though so that was part of it <laughs> i keep doing that with exists and willow creek i've done this like three or four times now where uh-huh. I'll, I'll be like i know i've seen one of the found footage bigfoot movies but i can't remember which one it is and i'll watch one thinking oh that's the one i haven't seen i'll get a full 30 minutes into it before <laughs> i'm like oh shit yeah this is the one i've seen yeah and then i'll go and watch the other one and realize 20 30 minutes in ah oh, i've seen this one too <laughs> Both very different movies. <laughs> yeah. I just don't remember anything about them until about 30 minutes in. <laughs> yeah, I've seen it three times now, and I, for a movie I don't like, that's an awful lot of times to have seen it. So you didn't like this movie? No. I liked it. I There's things I find interesting about it, and I like where their hearts were at. Their heads, one of the two. Yeah. I, I either like their logic and dislike their sentiment, or I like their sentiment and dislike their logic. It's one or the other. I haven't decided which. Maybe I'll watch it again. Yeah. <laughs> see, we disagree on the ending, and I think that... I just don't see it. That I, I don't see what you see in that ending. Reveal at the end that apparently it's... this. It, the ending of this movie is like the... Is that dress blue and gold or blue and black? Oh, the dress, yeah. Yeah, the the ending of this movie is that, because about half the people I know who've seen it, which is like three people, <laughs> caught the same thing at the end Where does I Keith did. Carey stand on it? Have you talked to him? He doesn't recall. Oh. <laughs> so he didn't, because when I... When I saw the ending, I was like, oh, that's clever. And I feel like if you don't, I just don't. have that, then maybe the movie's I not as it. enjoyable. Well, Should we just tell people? I feel like I would dislike that if that were the case. I thought it was a neat twist. I, I feel like we Go have... Go ahead and tell it. Okay, here's here's my, <laughs> my take on the Poughkeepsie tapes is it's a, a pseudo documentary, but the reveal at the end is that the killer was the one making the documentary like this documentary that went to butt namathon and failed was made by this killer and the reason i think that there's an interview at the end with one of the victims and it's the first time you hear the documentary filmmaker's voice and the way he's conducting that interview and the terror in the girl's face and there's a previous scene where we hear the killer talk while holding a camera those voices are the same i think this is a movie about a killer making a documentary about his own crimes to the point that he even someone gets like framed at one point if i recall yes the killer does frame someone really quick i love that scene that's maybe my favorite scene in the movie is that interview yeah and i think it's partly because i don't see that in it <laughs> because i mean i i just kind of take it as they have similar voices because nah, i think the killer some made people the have similar voices i don't see that because i mean unless she the entire time that he held her captive if he never revealed his face to her. Or maybe he did, and she just understood that she was basically still being held but captive. But then why in that interview would she be like, he's coming back someday? Like, and then Maybe the, that's what he told and then her there's to that, say. And then there's the reveal at the end of that interview via the text that 
pops up on the screen about what happens to her. Right. I just, I don't think that that connects neatly enough for that to be a very clear reveal. People should go me. watch the Poughkeepsie tapes. And watch, look, if you haven't seen the film, watch it. Tell Adam he's wrong or tell me I'm wrong. Don't I, you dare tell us we're both wrong. Yeah, we can't both be wrong yeah. here. That's ridiculous. Yeah, the, we are two sides of a coin right now. <laughs> and you need to pick which one. So you think, you think the reveal is that it's like a last broadcast scenario where this filmmaker yeah. is setting these events the up. The last broadcast, but with a far better ending. Without completely falling apart at the right. end. Yeah. yeah, that was what I took from <laughs> Yeah, well, I, I don't see it, but... To each their own. To each, look, maybe that's the point. Maybe the, maybe the brothers don't agree on it. Maybe. Maybe John Eric Dowdle is with you and Drew Dowdle is with me. I don't, maybe I don't it's know. real and it was pulled <laughs> because the government didn't want us to see it. So look, this film, <laughs> this film, as as Adam said, is a pseudo documentary with a found footage component. It's actually the documentary angle of it for the most part really works. One of the things I really like, we discussed this with last broadcast. We will discuss this with Lake Mungo on a future episode. I really like it when a pseudo doc film or a mockumentary can pull off the documentary aesthetic structure yeah. and technique in a very uh, credible and compelling way because a lot of them don't. There's a lot right. of there's a lot of pseudo docs that are like uh, you don't know what a documentary is. Yeah. So yeah. when 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 filmmakers can sort of do that and also while bringing something sort of new and different vision and voice wise to it, uh, that really goes a long way to win me over. Yeah. And I think that this film for the most part does that. It does fuck up in some ways uh, right off the bat. The format switch between the old tapes uh-huh. and the current, you know, video tech that's being used to record and edit these films, it's not reflected in an as- aspect ratio shift or a really noticeable quality change. That's just, maybe that's a nitpick, but for me, it's 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 the brown M&Ms. You know what I mean? It's like if you... Yeah, the Van Halen, like, yeah, the, they didn't really care about the brown M&Ms, they just wanted to know someone was paying attention. If they paid attention. attention to that detail, you know they got everything else right. Right. If you pay attention to this detail, I'm not going to worry about picking apart the rest. If I see that you didn't pay attention to this detail, I'm getting the clipboard out. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like that that's that's kind of that's kind of what this is for me so called a nitpick or whatever but i think it's a, a pretty big problem but other than that the the doc technique is pretty savvy the characters i like that they all look like real people instead of actors but it, it is nice to see people that like oh this guy he looks like a regular guy this lady she looks like a regular lady the film is split up into ch- like chapters yeah and the first part the first chapter is sort of a, just a setup of the legacy of the tapes and the almost the threat that the tapes themselves carry it's also kind of a way of that last broadcasty comment on found footage and media and the gaze and it's it's pretty meta it's a little postmodern and it's also just a good horror storytelling aid yeah, yeah to like represent these tapes kind of as like a, a cursed object right. almost i don't want to break down too many details here but the balloon shit when the when the uh when the guy who has to go through the tapes which is my favorite story is his thing about like having walking in and his girlfriend watched right a little bit of one of the tapes and wouldn't let her wouldn't let him touch her for a year it's again yeah. it's another it's another nice horror storytelling thing that kind of sets up these tapes as like they're a problem 
Right. Uh, but he says at one point, the, there's balloon. There's a lot of balloon stuff. <laughs> and there's a woman, you know, sitting on a balloon and he yells at her to pop it. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Actually, now that I think about it, that shot is very fucked up and degraded. So I guess a lot of the VHS footage is, now that I think about it, it does look, yeah. de- it looks degraded enough. And you do kind of see this evolution of the technology improving as the tapes go on. Right. Chronologically, just in the advancement of technology yeah. at the time. Right up to the point where he's just using the same technology he uses to make the documentary. Okay. All right. If that's, <laughs> if that's how you read it. Uh, Who's to say? I want, like, I think that there's, there's going to be a, a religious schism among Poughkeepsie Tapes fans. <laughs> That's what I want. It's like the, the Church of England. <laughs> what do you think of the profiler professor, the, F- the FBI profiler who's teaching the class? He's very... Oh, uh, yeah. He almost seems like a character actor who would play an ex-cop or something oh, in a sure. movie or on a TV show. Yeah. Kind of um, tough guy. I'm on the fence about him. I liked him because because of that quality, but it also made the whole thing feel a little less real. Yeah. First victim is a kid. That's that's always ballsy. That is a bold move. That's, in that, I saw in your notes, that's part of why they didn't want to present this yes. as this is actual footage because they were like, you know, if the Blair Witch is real, it's like, okay, well, that's a witch. But if this is real, it's like, oh, that's a child murder. Yeah. we just watched and no one wants to see no that one wants for to real. see that for real <laughs> yeah yeah that's i think uh, john eric dowdle said that yeah and it's yeah it's very true it's like if your first victim in this is a kid and you're presenting this as a real documentary at this point in the film if you're in the audience you've either said this is not real this is fake and they're lying to me right or you believe it's real and you see that and you go well this is very unethical yeah yeah you're this is horribly offended yeah this is this is fucked up how dare you yeah especially when not long after that the mother they have an interview with the actress playing the kid the murdered kid's mother who's like who rapes and kills a little girl (laughs) one I don't think she would say that I don't think (laughs) you know what I mean like that doesn't I I hate to we're dealing with a lot of heavy subjects in this episode today so I'm like trying not to be too whimsical about things right but like what fucking mother would say that yeah in yeah. those terms you know it's just not believable no they also interview a police investigator at a family barbecue at one point <laughs> like yeah that he's, was weird he's grilling up burgers and his family's <laughs> at the table behind him and he's like talking about dead bodies and shit and you're like this is a do weird you, choice do you watch much true crime i don't uh which is partly why i'm not super into this particular sub sub genre yeah that scene reminded me of there's a show on investigation discovery called the nightmare next door Mm. and for at least the first couple seasons at one point during every episode they would just do this weird like two or three minute side segment about the lead detectives hobbies or pursuits so it stop they'd be telling you this (laughs) insane story about a single mother who went missing and was murdered and then you look up and the detective is like shredding a guitar solo in his garage (laughs) you're like what why is he celebrating did she come back like what happened wow and i don't think they still do it but for the first few seasons they did and it was the craziest fucking so thing. maybe then this is right on the nose
goes with that. It's just right on the money with that kind of thing. Yeah, I mean, it does. It's kind of prescient in that way because yeah. it sort of predates mm. treating actual crimes in that manner. Yeah. Because we do it now. Like, I'm surprised there's not an investigation discovery show that's just called Murdered Children. Like, they have every other fucking subset you could want. And I feel like Murdered Kids is coming next. Just dead kids. Yeah. On inve- investigation well, and, discovery. You know, it's fine when it's it's more acceptable when it's an investigator of some sort, especially like a, a detective, a police detective, because there's kind of a, there's a certain amount of leeway granted to them as far as Gallo's humor is concerned, as far right. as like, you know, they're the ones that find the bodies. They're the ones that, uh, to wax David Simon about it, they're the ones that speak for the dead. So yeah. they have this great burden already, and to kind of deal with that, they sort of have to develop a sense of humor about it a detachment oh sure from it because otherwise you'll go nuts you know if you've read homicide a year on the killing streets there's a lot of that stuff in there or any cop show really yeah. where like even fictional ones where they're making jokes about whatever you know I mean, that's li- more acceptable than a mother going what kind of sick bastard rapes and murders a little girl and it's like uh, i mean you're not wrong yeah but i don't believe you're saying this yeah that seems weird so maybe the barbecue's okay all right you know what Barbecue gets a pass. That's my. (laughs) (laughs) There's kind of a wink here. There's a lot in this film that I sort of have to find a new angle on as far as my reading of it is concerned, as far as like my interpretation of it is. And I kind of started to see more and more of like a postmodern meta quality to it. Uh huh. A lot of self reference and a lot of reference to the found footage subgenre and to, you know, larger horror genre as a whole. And that was fun to see. And I don't know how much of that was I'm sure a lot of it was intentional because even in two thousand seven, you know, we're right now on in two thousand seven, we're right on the the precipice of found footage as a subgenre exploding yeah. on a national level right. with wide releases and studio pictures. You know, it, it took a while to get there. Sure, sure. But And there was a lot of good stuff in that time, but there already kind of was a formalism and a language to it and uh, a culture behind it. So when there's stuff like, um, you know, the profiler's talking about he had a ready-made excuse for the camera. I mean, that's a wink, even in 2007. Right. That the subgenre had gone postmodern a little bit and had yeah. sets of rules to it. The same thing with the the bit about the killer getting better with all the experts, the forensics experts and stuff, sort of admiring the killer's technique and, right. and knowledge of bureaucracy and investigation procedures, the details about the killer's different weapons and implement use and the locations and the body displays. And it almost, when you're watching that, it feels like watching talking heads on a horror documentary yeah. talking about a Friday the 13th installment. And and it there's also this kind of mild indictment of horror fandom in there when you've got that uh, investigator who's like, he knew a lot about red tape. You got to hand it to him. He knew about bureaucracy. Right. He understood that. And the filmmaker says, like, it sounds like you admire him or something. And she's like, no, after I heard about Cheryl Dempsey, I've got nothing but contempt for him. It's sort of like that scene in Friday the 13th Part 6 where the gravedigger looks up directly at the camera and says some people got a strange idea entertainment like it <laughs> yeah. feels like uh we're being fun with a little bit but also right. kind of being told to look at ourselves so when i started getting into that i started to enjoy the film a lot more right and i just now realized that i have blown entirely past the setup of this film and the premise and what these tapes are right so they find these tapes in a house 
It's a ton of tapes. It's a lot. Yeah, I mean, it's a lot of tapes. It's at least. I mean, they they do a whole thing where they lay them out on a tape on a on yeah. a series of tables to show how many they are, and that's pretty awesome. Yeah, that's really like imposing because it's like you already know that like one of these tapes is powerful and threatening on its own, and then you see this fucking endless row of them, and it's yeah. But yeah, so there's a lot of them, and they represent the murders carried out by this killer over the course of over a decade yeah it's a long decade which is one of the other things that should have tipped people off that it was Mm -hmm. fake if Mm -hmm. there was a killer operating with this kind of proficiency in the United States, you probably would have heard about it. Unless it's yeah. the smiley face murders. Yeah. <laughs> in which case, you'll only hear about it on the Unpops Network. Hell yeah. We're the only podcast We've talked about it so brave many enough times. to talk about the smiley face killer. <laughs> Zuh. I think it's more than one. Yeah, I think it's a network. It's a network. Yeah, but it's also like the fact that it takes place over a decade and that the killer changes MO so many times and changes technique and changes all of these other things and goes to these different locations and operates operates under these different conditions, I also think lends kind of a supernatural quality yeah. to this killer, which, I mean, it's vague and it's implicit. It's not like Freddy Krueger, you know, it's not right. It's not quite so But they do, they do build this killer yeah. into almost kind of a traditional horror movie character. Yeah, it's... Like, it's, there's a lot of mythology behind it, and it's, mm-hmm. it's something you don't see a lot in found footage movies that just center around one killer. Yeah, well, because... They, they even do a section on the profiling later where it's like all of these profiles that have been developed right. for these different murders are conflicting with each other. Yeah. They don't paint the same picture. They paint very different pictures. And so the idea then is that this killer could be anyone, you know, right. or anything. Like there's kind of this mystical quality to it that I actually, that helps me get on board too because it, it makes the narrative richer. The big reveal on these tapes is that all of these different murders that speak and a long time, a, lo- a long time, and a long area too. Right, a wide, a wide area. These tapes reveal that these murders are all the work of one person. Right, which is insane, and that's where the supernatural quality comes from, uh, and that's where those implications are, and they're fleshed out a little later when we get to the profiling and stuff. But that makes this film stand out and appealing for someone like me who's usually turned off by this kind of thing. Because yeah. as I've said before, if you're going to show me found footage horror, it better not just be something that I can see on the news. You know, it better not yeah. be just something that's like, oh, I get it. Humans are evil and we do evil shit to other people. Thank you. I'm a human being. I've lived here. I've read a book. I know this. Like, right. I want something that maybe opens up the possibilities a little bit. Yeah. I want something that that introduces some magic into the equation. And this isn't that per se, but it, it's an interesting way way around that to get a similar result for someone like me. But at this point now, we're, we're then introduced to uh, Cheryl Dempsey, who becomes a major, major character. And this actually, in a way, sets up another bit of the slasher parallels that I see in this film. The whole stalking. Yeah. Uh, there's kind of a behind the mask Rise of Leslie Vernon thing going on there. Yeah. But also, there's a direct reference to fucking Halloween in that scene of him stalking her and then going into the house. He doesn't open a drawer, but he pulls a knife out and you see there's a shot oh, of him yeah. holding the knife out of the camera. I mean, that's Halloween. Yeah. That's what yeah. that is. And then goes up to the, the bedroom and she's in the shower and there's kind of a psycho vibe there. Right. And this whole sequence is actually very unnerving. It again, like, reinforces 
forces this sort of postmodern read on it to me as like, okay, this is a movie. It's a found footage pseudo documentary horror movie about slasher movies. Yeah. And we're starting with the basics here. We're starting with Halloween. Right. And I mean, there's a false jump scare in there with the boyfriend character. It's just a very interesting sequence. It's a very disturbing sequence. It's patient, which I like. Yeah. Anyway, here's where we get to the stuff that I don't like, but because I can, my brain is making me look at the film in this sort of reflexive way. It's it's a little interesting to me because here's the introduction of the Commedia dell'arte aspect of this killer, and he's wearing a plague mask, right? And doing this whole Commedia dell'arte thing, like a dork, yeah. you know, like with this whole theater thing. And I look, I love theater. I I participated in theater for a long time. It's great. <laughs> yeah, I it does not feel like it belongs here in this film uh yeah but even in that it's almost like a commentary if we're going with this interpretation that i have it's almost like a commentary on how ridiculous the slasher movies got with their theatricality right and i mean the fact that he's wearing a plague doctor mask you know it's a mask it's a goofy mask but it's a mask yeah and then it kind of you know there's some torture porn stuff with him calling her slave and it's obnoxious and it's just dumb and it's hard for me to buy that the guy i just saw doing this b and e and stalker scene right on this on the Dempsey house and then kills her boyfriend very brutally and abducts her and is very patient it's hard for me to watch that and then watch the stuff in the basement with the plague doctor mask and the shouting and yeah be like oh that's the same guy I mean I like that read on it but like if I want to watch a Vincent Price movie I'll watch a Vincent Price movie I'll watch Abominable Dr. Fives I don't necessarily need this or if I want to watch a ridiculous slasher movie like Freddy Kraken jokes i'll watch nightmare on Elm street part five you know what i yeah, mean like i yeah. i don't need that in this it kind of undermines it i mean the argument could be made that yes the postmodern read applies and yes that it, it further illustrates this idea that this one guy is doing all these very different things but it just kind of falls flat for me for the purposes of this film i don't know it's just it just reeks of bad improv yeah i mean if the if the i'm watching an actual documentary with the actual tapes uh suspension of this belief if that hasn't worn off for you yet uh this 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 is where it i think is gone yeah then we get to the point where the killer approaches the mother which i think is a cool idea for a scene yeah especially if you're setting up that ending but yeah see this is the part where i think you might have something yeah because without that without that reveal or without a reveal setting that up doesn't serve a narrative purpose. Right. It's really right. only there to be like, look at how scary this is. I mean, that scene is genuinely chilling. Yeah, it's a really good scene. It's it's one of several scenes that I think are are genuinely like horrifying and and work very well. Yeah. But yeah, I don't I don't see the reveal, so I don't see how it works in there. <laughs> then we get to the new MO, even after the Cheryl stuff feels off. Now he's wearing a gas mask and he's attacking sex workers and abducting them. And here's where we start to see the setting up of Cheryl Dempsey being his slave thing right. start to kind of go places because he, spoiler, makes her kill someone. Yes. And I don't, again, it doesn't work for me, but I get why it's in there. Maybe this too, actually, in a way, through a postmodern lens, kind of chronicles the turning point from when the slasher movies died and the psychological thrillers yeah. gave rise to torture porn. Because right. in a way, he's making her kill somebody. That's Saw. That's hostile. Yeah, that's what sure. that is. That is at work here. Right. Could be. 
And just like hanging people on hooks in general in a basement wearing a gas mask. It's very industrial. Yeah. It's very late 90s, early 2000s. So it, it, even that in itself has that genre criticism element to it. I really don't like the Ted Bundy thing. Yeah. I don't get why that's in there. What was the Ted Bundy thing? Uh, so the profiler talks about how he interviewed Ted Bundy once. Because at this point, it's revealed. This is this is the sex worker chapter. This is where we get into the Water Street Butcher stuff. And this is where it's revealed that they've been finding corpses that appear to have been sexually assaulted post-mortem. This is one of those things where you're riding the line for me because it's like you're doing this just to try and gross me out like there's nothing i mean it's viscerally disturbing yes but it sort of feels to me like okay now you're just trying to be like see he's gross he's evil he's disgusting and it's like i get it and then there's this really weird thing where the profiler's like yeah i talked to ted bundy once about necrophilia and there's like a shot of this interview with an actor playing ted bundy and it's just like what are you doing right why why is this in here? I just, I've kind of had this thought as we've been talking about it. Do you think they were going for a thing where you were supposed to come away from this maybe thinking this guy had committed some of the other, like that thing I just mentioned where the, they where think one guy did all these be things. Ted Bundy because killer. the the sex with corpses, that's based on a real thing. That they, I believe it was Ted Bundy that they interviewed about the Green River killer. And that was... I think it was Ted Bundy who was like, yeah, he's going to come back and have sex with so that's And that's corpses. what happens in Poughkeepsie tapes. Right. I wonder if that's kind of what they were hmm. going for and maybe that's trying to make it seem like because this guy committed all these crimes that spanned all these decades and there's that element where he does frame at least one person at one point for some of the murders. I wonder if they were trying to give the impression that maybe he framed all these other people and he committed all yeah. these other murders too. I mean, it could just be a nod to the Green River killer case right. because that's another killer that went unsolved for a long very long, long time, time. Yeah. it could be that i mean it also provides a nice brief little if we're doing if we're still on this you know this is a criticism of the genre thing it's it's a nice little yeah abrupt nod to the silence of the lambs through the using a killer to hunt another killer thing but so from here we're in the sex worker phase the and we'll have these conversations about you know <sighs> sex workers and snuff films and sex workers and serial killers and the evil implications of capitalism and and clashing with puritanical moral infrastructures but uh the scene with the girl scouts is another scene that's very tense yeah because there's that hitchcock quality to it where it's like we know there's a bomb in here <laughs> like right and now we're seeing two little girl girl scouts in this room with this guy and we've already seen what he did to one kid like this it's horrifying yeah the entire time you're waiting for something to happen yeah that scene was really uncomfortable yeah and the payoff for it is like the one time that i'm into what's going on with cheryl dempsey i won't reveal what the payoff is because it's great but it's it got me and it's fucked up yeah and then we get the framing of the cop because he's been the killer has been impersonating cop which is not an uncommon thing right this cop gets framed and the 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 actor they chose to play the cop is great because he's creepy looking yeah he looks like the kind of guy that you would have seen news footage of being you know on a perp walk or marched into a courtroom in irons like yeah he he looks like that guy we get into some weird violation of documentary ethics with the reenacted execution sequence yeah intercut with actual crime scene photos 
photos that's just like, okay, now there's no illusion this is real because right. no documentarian would do that. That's You don't know what you're doing if that's what you're doing. Right. And then we get to maybe my favorite part of the movie, aside from the Cheryl Dempsey interview towards the end, which is the reveal. Yes. <laughs> Like, it's so fucked up. that Because what happens is is the cop who, who the killer framed uh, as the Water Street Butcher, which is the name they gave to this, right. the killer killing the sex workers, is revealed to be innocent. Yes. Because the killer waits... Until after he's until executed. Until after the execution, which is years after the trial. Right. Years after he's been convicted. So he's already switched up his MO again and right. then waited so long for one last little, like, sent a letter... Yeah. That says missed one to a cop. Like, that's a great touch. Yeah. But the next reveal is masterful because the cop's son is lamenting the fact that he was proven innocent on September 10th, 2001. Yeah. And the newspaper was going to run a big story the next day. Yeah, that's pretty great. And there's like that one guy is like literally any other day. (laughs) Yeah. And everyone would know this cop was innocent. Going off of your question earlier, if they're trying to imply that this killer is responsible for maybe some other actual real life killings that we know about, are they trying to suggest that this killer did 9-11? Oh, I Is hope that what so. they're saying? <laughs> that would be so great. Is that just to continue getting away with it? He <laughs> fucking did 9-11 to... It's, hey, n- it's not impossible. It's open to interpretation. Right. That was just all holograms and thermite, so... And this guy's a filmmaker. Yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> There's also that... that it, it's followed up by that, that MO switch uh, talk about restoring the uh, sense of normality in the community, too. It was like he switched to killing sex workers because if you have a serial killer, the public is going to... If you have a serial killer targeting, you know, quote-unquote regular people, right. those people are going to get concerned. They're going to pressure the police and they're going to start... They're going to start being insistent that someone do something. But then if it's just like, oh, he's just killing prostitutes, it's fine. He's yeah. just killing sex workers. He's just killing these people that are disposable to our society because we live in a fucked up society. It's fine. And it just like immediately restores this calm yeah. to the town. I thought that was a really brilliant touch and served some of this film's politics pretty well. Yeah. Some of them are still a little deplorable to me. The I'm not a cop scene is very fucking rough. I don't like where it goes. I mean, I, you're not supposed to. I mean, it's the kind of thing that wouldn't fly today. Yeah, there's weird overtones in that scene. Yeah. For and, sure. And not in a way that like feels like it knows what it's trying to say with it. There's stuff that almost feels like it's being played for an uncomfortable laugh. Right. There's like a rape joke in it. Yeah. It's not great. But then the next, maybe not the next, very next sequence, but a sequence that comes up very shortly also goes once again to reinforce this read on it I have as sort of an overarching commentary on horror genre, the J-horror scene. Oh, yeah. The scene that everyone talks about, aside from the Cheryl Dempsey interview, the creepy crawling on the floor with the mask thing. I mean, that's J-horror. That's the ring. That's Juan, the grudge. Like, it's, that's what that is. And it's, you're watching it and going, oh, this... I don't know. Once I found that read on it, I started to like this film a lot more. Yeah. Um, I don't like the payoff of that scene. I don't like how it ends. It's creepy, but there's no dramatic tension in that scene because right. you know she's not going to get away. And it's sort of like, you know the eyeball scene in Zombie, Lucio, the F- Lucio Fulci movie? No. The scene takes forever, and it's so long. Uh-huh. And the entire time you're watching it, like, ah, fuck, are they going to cut away? Because at this point, there's kind of an assumption that they're not getting away. This thing is right. going to hit that eyeball. The dramatic tension is no longer in an investment in the character. It's in a how far are they going to go? Right. What are they going to 
to show me and what are they going to shy away from? Right. Which isn't, I mean, it's an interesting concept. It's just not my cup of tea. Yeah. But again, the J-horror element, you know, in the movement and in the, the wardrobe of that scene aside, there's still no fantasy element to it, just a facade of it. Right. So, and then we get to kind of this part where, you know, the profile's that all these people have concocted for these different killers are being reviewed and are being shown to be different. And and now we're kind of caught up to this point where we're going back to the beginning and looping around because yeah. now we get the clue that leads them to find the house where the tapes are. The clue thing kind of seemed pretty flimsy to me. I would have liked it actually a lot more if it had come back to those Girl Scouts somehow, if the Girl Scouts had told someone and that was how they found the house and that maybe it would have come across like him letting them go was intentional right. so that they would find the house. It just seems kind of flimsy to me that that's how they found that this yeah. one little clue using a map quest <laughs> right. uh, download is how they found the house. <laughs> it's just like, really? It was that easy? That's yeah. how you did it? Oh, okay, come on sort of deflates the idea of like the implications that there's something otherworldly or or uh, extra powerful going on here. Yeah. And then we have this raid scene on the house and they, they find the tapes. But then there's some details like there's not a single fingerprint in there and that's spooky. Yeah. The idea that he gave them the tapes but like he didn't like gift wrap them for the cops at all. Like they weren't sitting out. They were in a box in yeah. a closet and they still had to go and find it. Right. And they still had to go and find some other things they found and i think that's a nice wrinkle i just yeah and then we have the reveal that cheryl is still in the house right and they recover her and there's this really interesting description of the trauma that she suffered and the self-torture and self-harm that she's engaging in as a result of this conditioning and abuse that she's undergone living with this guy the interview with her best friend seems a little too casual to me she's kind of yeah. talking about it like well and then you see her and she's you know not the person you remember you know it's sort of like mm. it's sort yeah. of like the mom again where it's like i don't think you would talk like that about this person after what they've been through that's right. really disturbing and then we have the master stroke of the cheryl dempsey interview which we've discussed i think it would i think it would probably hit harder without the reveals previous of the plague doctor stuff and what she went through you know what i mean it's sort of yeah. like maybe if they'd shown us less of that there would be more of a like our brains would kind of fill in the blanks on right. what she'd been through and it would seem a little more harrowing and more uh foreboding but it is that that interview is is just masterful it's yeah like that that actress is incredible in it like that, yeah the thing where she was whispering where she's like i don't know what you want me to say right like it's it's great because like yeah psychologically she's looking for permission because she doesn't know how to do anything without permission anymore but also the whisper like that actress said in an interview that she got that from her niece or something her friend's kid oh really like it was just a choice she made it wasn't in the writing the directors didn't tell her that she just thought that that was interesting and she's right it it absolutely works the hand reveal where she goes up to put her hand and that's the that's effects that john eric dowdle actually himself did because they were doing it themselves he went through and green screened and like frame by frame kind of touched that up it's good the grave robbing bit that follows is good i don't uh, with the sorry with the end of the interview sequence i don't understand the reveal there if you haven't seen the film 
spoiler alert, it's revealed that she killed herself. The end of the interview, the text comes up that says she killed herself. It doesn't make sense to me narratively. Right. It doesn't make sense to me from that interview. There's no information that leads me to that conclusion. Also, again, it's a do- it's a violation of documentary ethics, kind of. It's a little fucked up to just be like, eh, she killed herself. Like, But see, d- don't you think that could all lend into the fact that this was a documentary being made by not necessarily a person who was proficient in making documentaries. <laughs> but proficient in killing people? But proficient yeah, okay. in killing and filming it <laughs> and had just taken his passion to a whole new level. I mean, yeah, you know what? That would actually make the violation of, of you know, the ethical concerns of documentary filmmaking. I would That would make it a little more palatable to me. Because it's a direct... If it was... There's no way that would be a real documentary. Like, there's... <laughs> no. The things you see there's in it. There's too much shit in there that's like, come on. That's a thing. The film, the film never shows you the documentary filmmaker, which is very rare for a mm-hmm. found footage movie like this. There's almost always that opening setup where they're fucking gathering their cameras and talking about what they're going to do and why they're filming it. Yeah. And this just, you don't see any of that. It just kind of launches into it. So it, it doesn't ever really touch on like what's going on in the mind of the person making this documentary and thinking, yeah, this is a thing we can present to the public. Like, no, it's clearly not. <laughs> You can't show this to anybody at all, ever. Yeah. Well, I think... I'm not saying I absolutely disagree with you. I'm just saying I don't see it, and it doesn't make a lot of sense to me. But you know what? That's okay. Because honestly, a lot about the ending of this film doesn't make sense to me. Yeah. I do think it kind of falls apart a little bit here and there. I do think that they start setting things up towards the end that don't have any payoff. The note, the fact that she left a suicide note, the note she left was a declaration of undying love for her captor. Right. Which doesn't make any sense if she's expecting to see him again. So maybe you're right, and he killed her, and then he left that note. I just think that if it was an actual suicide, that note would make more sense as an apology. Right. Because at that point, she's just a walking apology. There's no more connections uh, in the news stories about when the footage was discovered. They make this detail of 27 missing tapes, which is a nice detail. They were trying to set up a sequel, I assume. Okay, yeah, that's that's possible. Because it's just speculation at that point, and that's too soft a punch after they've already done the, maybe the killer's out there. Maybe he's going to watch this movie. Because that's the gag. Right there is them saying, maybe he's in the theater with you right now watching this movie. I mean, no one literally says that, but he does say, I'll tell you this much, when that documentary comes out, he's going to come see it, and he's going to see it again, and again, and again. Like, yeah. And that's a nice little nod to the old William Castle kind of stuff, where it's right. like, oh, I get what you're doing here. It's fun. You're making yeah. me a part of it. But then there's still more movie <laughs> after that, you know? I don't know. The post credit stinger is dumb. Because, I mean, the idea is that there's a lot of footage they're not showing us of a right. lot of other murders. And which, that, that was probably meant to go in a sequel A sequel, also, yeah. Um, unfortunately, we never got a sequel because the movie took 10 years to come out. Yeah. Uh, it wasn't until 10 years after its scheduled release. I would watch a sequel. That's great. In fact, put it. it out. I kind of would. I don't think that they would now. I don't think they'd go back. Yeah. I mean, they have said, it has been uh, posited by the woman who plays Cheryl Dempsey that she doesn't think that this movie would have worked as a wide release at the time in 2000 theaters. She's, she I disagree thinks it was, with that. She thinks that because it was pulled, it became, it went underground. And because it went underground, it created this underground hype, which is kind yeah. of where this type of film belongs anyway Mm, i think it still would have gone a little bit underground even if it got released i think it would have been like a cult classic 
kind yeah. of thing. It's interesting that a lot of times now, even big studio released films will kind of find an audience later than they're, you know, they don't do so well. And that's... It's because of DVDs. Yeah, it's because of DVDs, Blu-rays. In genre, though, I think it's also, I mean, nowadays, who knows, you know, it's podcast related. Yeah. Or, but you think Poughkeepsie Tapes would have... I think it would have, like, it was, like, right in that sweet spot for found footage. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if sweet spot's even the right word, where it was kind of... But it was being advertised. There were trailers for yeah, it. it was, it, in theaters. It would have been around the same time as Paranormal Activity. Because, yes, this is right on the cusp. This is right before the found footage explosion. Right. Since 1989, you know, with UFO abduction and all the false starts that had happened up through Blair Witch Project and Poughkeepsie Tapes and, and, and all, all the other smattering of found footage stuff that had been released at the time, it was still pretty niche. It was still a very small section. And then Paranormal Activity comes out in 2007, which is when Poughkeepsie Tapes was supposed to be released. Right. And just blows the doors off of it. And now every studio is putting out multiple found footage horror movies a year. Yeah, I wonder if Poughkeepsie Tapes could have been that movie. It's interesting to think about because it might have been. It's sort of like a UFO abduction. Yeah, it's really well shot. For mm-hmm. a found footage thing, at least in a lot of parts. And it's, yes. And it's almost in that way kind of an antithesis to paranormal activity, mm-hmm. which is all like fucking surveillance cameras and things. I will I will say that I do think, and we'll get more into this in the next episode when we cover paranormal activity and the and the explosion of the found footage film and, and the, the peculiar circumstances, I think, that led to that mainstream popularity. I think it's a different set of circumstances. I think it's I think paranormal activity took off for different reasons. Than Poughkeepsie Tapes would have. Yeah. Poughkeepsie Tapes is six years after 9 11. We've kind of maybe gotten the cynicism and the need for that harsh reality out of our system a little bit. Yeah. And Paranormal Activity comes along and is still a very dark movie and still plays with the idea, but it plays with different ideas. You know, it's, sure, sure. it's more of a reality TV American family kind of thing than it is, you know, Poughkeepsie Tapes, which is the evil is out there. And by that time, maybe the public was kind of tired of being told the evil was out there. Yeah. Uh, we were already at this point four years into the war in Iraq and we, we already knew things were fucked. And I think Paranormal Activity is, you know, again, it's it's supernatural, which is the difference, again, between Blair Witch and Last Broadcast is that one is going to tell us a ghost story and the other yeah. one is just like man is the monster. And the marketing campaign behind Paranormal Activity was, mm-hmm. like, I think that's what, in a lot of ways, sold that movie. Because I remember it so clearly where they would, like, you could see internet videos of people reacting to mm-hmm. it. It was more focused. The marketing campaign for Paranormal Activity, I think, was the first time that a studio figured out what to to do marketing wise with found footage in yeah. the wake of Blair Witch where with Poughkeepsie Tapes you have the studio trying to insist that it's real right. and at that point we're done we, 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 we know it's not and Paranormal Activities marketing focused more on this grassroots campaign to get it into theaters and to show the audience reactions to like say hey this is something you will enjoy this is something people like yeah. and took on this underdog mantle almost where it was like you can help us get our movie right. in your you town had to like- sign up on a website and like the movie was obviously coming to every town Mm -hmm. yeah but that was a smart move yeah on their part and it got me really i 
remember I was like, I have to see this. Like, yeah. What is this movie? And I think it one of the more important things about that campaign is that it sort of delivered on that because there were a lot of moments in paranormal activity, especially when you first see it in theaters where like the jump scares are just out of this goddamn world. And that's pretty much the the shots of the audience mm-hmm. that you were seeing. So it did that. Like it it was a scary movie. Yeah. Yeah. I don't like I remember there were trailers for Poughkeepsie tapes, but I don't remember the campaign that much. So I don't know. It was, I mean, it wasn't a very unique campaign. It was kind of the way any movie campaign, it was trailers and posters. Yeah. And it was trailers in front of big releases and posters in multiplexes. And I mean, if I remember the trailer specifically, it you know, it definitely was kind of this in Poughkeepsie, New York, this serial killer has been active for, you know, 20 years or whatever. And it's kind of like, it's sort of framed like a doc, a trailer for a doc would be. And I think that at that point, I mean, I do think it would have had an audience. It's interesting to, it's hard to say. You know, you don't know really what would have caught on. Yeah, I wonder time. if people would have been angry over them trying to make it seem real. It definitely seemed like that was, I mean, that was at least the reaction at Buttonomathon. If that was a microcosm of the rest of the country, yeah, I do think that there would have been people that were let down. Right. I know that there was a lot of anticipation for it in genre circles, but I also think, I mean, those are the people that are going to find it anyway. You know, sure. if, it, yeah. if it eventually gets released like it did years and years later, I don't know. It's maybe silly to speculate. <laughs> yeah. But I just think that I think that paranormal activity was successful for a different set of reasons. Is she right? Is she wrong? Hard to say. Who knows? Who knows these days? Yeah. But what do you I mean, overall, what are the takeaways on the Poughkeepsie tapes? I like the Poughkeepsie tapes a lot. Yeah. Yeah, I'm still way into the ending of this movie. And I think it was I think it's one of the few movies where if I'm right about the twist mm-hmm. at the end, it's one of the few movies where the twist happened and I was like, oh. I didn't see that coming because I really didn't until that moment. I didn't see it, so I don't know. There's a lot it does that I like. It does a lot of, it has a lot of really interesting and clever and not just novel, but still unique takes on on certain themes and ideas. And that read that I have that it is maybe kind of a satirical presentation of genre, post-slasher genre history is, I mean, that's a fun take. I don't know if they intended that. Is it possible this movie is too smart? It's, it is possible. Like it's because ju- it, it almost by being so smart, it gets in the way of its conventions and tropes right. a little bit, and and sort of stumbles over them in that way. I'll buy that argument. Yeah, I'll buy that argument. There are, there are sequences in here that are masterful, and then there are things that I think are silly and get in its way. And it, I mean, overall, there are things I would have liked to have seen more of. I would have liked to have seen. I would have liked to have gotten more of a man on the street interviews with people because they use yeah. a lot of fake news footage to represent uh, the terror that this town is going through. But other than a few references to it, you don't really feel it. You know what I mean? You don't right. feel a town in the grips of a serial killer. Part of that, I think, is because of the idea that they think it's multiple killers. But I just would have liked some more man on the street interviews. You know, like the the, the Joe Average standing outside of the yeah. gas station. <laughs> going, yeah, I don't know, There's all these people getting killed, I might, me and the family might move out of here, you know, something like, <laughs> something like that, I think, would have helped me appreciate it more, but I think all in all, it's it does what it's supposed to do, Yeah, it serves its purpose, it brings up a lot of disturbing things that it drops, it has some scenes that don't play so well in 2018. That's to be expected mm-hmm. with... Yeah, especially a lot from of movies from just yeah. that era, not yeah. just horror movies, just no. movies in general. Yeah. Culture in general, honestly. <laughs> the world. Yeah. <laughs> the whole, all of it. Society. Family members. Pets. <laughs> Are we just, now we're just doing nouns. <laughs> yeah, I had a very racist group of pets as a kid. Yeah. I, I buy it. Yeah. I buy as it. a kid in 2007. <laughs> 
it's not perfect, and it's not. It doesn't even do everything I would like. Most to, movies aren't do, but I think I think you enjoyed it a little more than I do. I did. I liked it a whole lot. Uh, I would recommend it if yeah. anyone can even fucking find it. <laughs> I think Scream Factory still sells the Blu-rays. Oh, really? Poughkeepsie tapes. Watch it or don't. It's it's difficult. <laughs> it's difficult for me because again, and I keep bringing up this point throughout this episode. These aren't my jams. You know what I mean? Like they're not why I'm into horror. And yeah, Poughkeepsie tapes is by comparison very tame when stood up next to a lot of the other things I've talked about in this episode. I mean, I'm not ever going to watch a Serbian film. Because you don't like Serbians? Yes. No. That makes uh, perfect sense. <laughs> I don't need to watch the new American guinea pig movies that are being made. I don't need to watch... Wait, is that the name of the movie? A Serbian film? Yes. The film is just called oh. A Serbian Film. It is the one of the most notorious mm. movies of all time. Yeah. For I w- good reason. It's hard to read the synopsis. Jeez. Yeah. Well, now I have to go check it out. I probably won't watch it either. I might. I'm not going to. I don't need to watch that. I don't need to watch August Underground. I don't need to watch any of these, you know, the, the, the stuff that... I have a difficult time enough as it is with the home invasion scene in Henry Portrait of a Serial Killer. Oh, yeah. And I... So I don't need... So these are not the things that I'm into, but they also inform what's happening in the genre and they inform the history of our genre. And as with all forms of art, you have sort of the extremists and the experimentalists on the sort of on the outskirts of the culture sort of pushing at it and yeah. doing different new things. And eventually that those changes filter into the center of the art form and right down the mainstream. So it's interesting to note these things for that reason, if for no other reason. But that's where my appreciation of them kind of begins and ends. I yeah. don't need to it's not my not my cup of tea. I I can appreciate a good uh snuff reference <laughs> in in a larger work that has a maybe a more appealing narrative to me. Sure. But I'm not going to watch something that's like, oh, this is just a simulated rape and murder. Yeah, yeah. Cool. Not for me. I I'm, agree with that. I'm not necessarily going to judge anyone that gets into that unless they're getting into it from a, I'm into rape you're and jerking murder, off to literally. It. Like, that's a problem. Yeah. Don't do that. Don't be that guy. Please don't. We can maybe talk about that at a later time. We've taken up a lot of time. <laughs> There's something about the idea that, like, uh, that sex workers are always the victims in these things. You know, they're yeah. always the, and it's, there's a whole conversation. I wonder there. where movies are getting that idea. From. There's, I mean, real life, obviously, yeah. <laughs> but there's a whole, and then you get the whole thing of like, should art try to be better than society? I personally do. Yeah, I would agree with that. Have a different motive besides yeah. just, hey, that's a sex worker. Yeah, give me kill. something else to go on. Or show me a character that's a sex worker, you know? Yeah. Like a sex worker who's a character in the thing and has a story that I understand. Right. Maybe do that. What a novel concept. <laughs> Right? (laughs) Fascinating. So we have covered a lot of ground. We have. We've gone through a lot of movies for the history to kind of chart where this came from. And now we're going to be leading into where the found footage boom the really golden age where where, the, where every studio suddenly decided they needed to have a micro budget division right uh, which is a cool thing yeah it's not like I would be all for writing a $10,000 movie if someone asked me to oh yeah and I think that like that aspect of it I think brought something to those movies mm-hmm. because it, it challenged people to film movies in a different way yes nothing wrong with that and it gave us a lot of filmmakers that are still working now and yeah it led to a lot of you know resources to be made available and a lot of creativity I mean it also led to a lot of cookie cutter stuff and right. eventually a decline in the format of found footage. Yeah. Which definite definite decline, yeah. but I think there's still good found there's footage. There's still good stuff. That's the thing is being that- made as soon as the Even boom today. and bust happens, then you move on to the people who 
who are asking what's next. Right. And they start doing some interesting stuff with it. And we'll get to that in a, in a later episode. I'm really excited about that one. Yeah. Because that's when we're going to talk about our favorites. But for now, I hope you all enjoyed this experimenting with a new format episode. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we'll see how it goes. If you if you love it, let, me, let us know. If you hate it, let us know. If, I'm also toying with the idea of maybe splitting the episodes up so that it's maybe a mini episode that's, here's the notes for this week, and then the next episode is a conversation about the film. Yeah. If you liked it better in the first two episodes when we're integrating all of it into just a conversation between Adam and myself, these are all options. We're still learning. I'm still figuring this out. The world is yours. The world is yours. Our world is yours. That's something like that. That's a terrifying thought. Rate and review us, Adam. You got any? Is this a podcast where we plug things? I don't like. We're recording these. Like, who knows what'll be happening yeah. in the world, right? When this comes out, yeah. are you still alive out there? Is everybody? Know. Is everyone okay? Where's the outpost? Where are we <laughs> yeah, all? Where do we meet? Yeah, where are we all gathering to rebuild society? <laughs> let us uh, know in the uh, in the comments. Yeah, let us know where we're meeting. Or I'm look. I'm working on my confidence and esteem and indecision. <laughs> I'm working on them. Class deceased. deceased. <laughs> <laughs>